Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Everybody understands, of course, that the, the condition of slavery, as you just pointed out, is is the absence of consent. Nobody consents to be a slave. So when when we ask, you know, do slaves consent to go work in the fields? Well, of course not. That's the nature of slavery. And that's true across the board. It's not just about work. It's about any interaction with a master. Therefore, any sexual contact between a master and a slave is essentially a case of rape. Now, most people would agree with that. And we talk actually in, in our history classes about how the white plantation owner would go into the slave quarters and rape women who were in the, that condition of slavery. But even though we'll say that in kind of a general way, that's very difficult for some people to recognize when it's applied to a specific white person, especially a revered white figure like Thomas Jefferson. So here's Thomas Jefferson, who's the author of the Declaration of Independence and our third president and, you know, this much revered figure. Somebody people have a lot of respect for, a lot invested in their ideas about Thomas Jefferson. Yet it's undoubtedly true that now, because of the DNA evidence and other forms of evidence, that we know that Thomas Jefferson had sexual relations with Sally Hemings, a woman he owned. That means, by definition, Thomas Jefferson raped Sally Hemings. So, now, even though the logic of that is, I think, beyond question, as you just pointed out, because Thomas Jefferson is such a, a heroic figure in American history for white people, white people often simply cannot accept that. So they'll talk about how he and Sally had a loving relationship, and, and all of these attempts to gloss over the fact that, in fact, 
Thomas Jefferson owned her and that when she was, you know, submitted to sexual relationships with him, it was in that conditions of master and slave. Um, I don't know exactly why, but there's something about Thomas Jefferson and his status that, that when you make that claim, it, it drives white people crazy. Now, that's not to say... That's not to say that, I mean, I don't know anything, obviously, about the psychology of Sally Hennings. I you know, haven't been able to talk to her, obviously. So I can't speak to how that relationship looked to her, nor can any of us, obviously, because, of course, she's long dead. So we don't know how she experienced this, but we do know the the legal status that she had in relationship to Thomas Jefferson at the time. And therefore, I think to say that Thomas Jefferson rapes Sally Hemings is a perfectly, it's historically accurate, it's um, logical, as you pointed out, but that doesn't mean people, you know, like to hear it. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 29th, 2016. So I have been told that was Robert Jensen, suspected racist. Uh, he was on the program. He's been on the program repeatedly. That was from 2011, uh, going right into Area 8, sexual activity, where we left off with last week. Our study session, the half has never been told. Mr. Edward Baptist, also a racist suspect. We are picking up in Chapter 7, The Seed. Uh, this is a rather lengthy chapter, so we have quite a bit uh, to get to. This is our eighth study session. We are on the home stretch. We will go ahead and get started, see if we can cover as much material as possible. Context of white supremacy, the half has never been told. Audio segment number one. In the 19th century U.S. South, Two factors stood in the way of white men who wanted to play out Edwards-style fantasies. One was the fact that American religious reformers had begun to identify non-marital sexuality as a major social problem, in part as a reaction to the way the increased mobility of young adults brought new temptations into their lives. Commercial quickening turned New York and other cities into hunting grounds for prostitutes looking for traveling businessmen, and vice versa. The solution said authors of literature on the topic, many of them female, was that girls and women needed to refuse sexual contact outside of the guarantee for the support that marriage provided. Young men, meanwhile, needed to learn the self-control such authors thought necessary to make the young republic a moral paragon by avoiding illicit sex and masturbation. The Victorian complex of ideas about sex soon became the consensus view of respectable society and enslaved people themselves often resisted, setting limits on the ability of white men to fulfill their desires. Their resistance was strengthened by strategies developed over generations of experience in southeastern communities. African-American family networks and ties to white patrons gave some girls and women allies who could intervene to prevent horrific abuse. The best-known case is that of Harriet Jacobs, whose Edenton, North Carolina enslaver, pursued her from the time she began puberty in the mid-1820s. For a decade, Jacob deflected his advances with the help of white and black allies. Ultimately, she sought refuge in the attic of her grandmother, 
a free woman of color. Of course, some women of African-American descent used their sexuality to create a little leverage for themselves. Nor was the shift toward a more Victorian way of thought the only reason why, for instance, white women felt anger and competition when their husbands had sex with enslaved women. And despite respectable condemnation of concubinage, the coercion of enslaved women continued in the 19th century. In one case, the South Carolina governor, James Henry Hammond, bought a woman and her daughter. The mother became his sexual partner. When her daughter reached 12, he made the girl his victim as well. He also molested his four white nieces, creating a scandal that ruined their marital prospects. Its effects on him were temporary, however, and he was elected to the U.S. Senate. Still, men like Hammond became increasingly circumspect in the Southeast. But the Southwestern region was different, in several key ways. Many migrant whites came with the idea already in their heads that slavery's frontier was a white man's sexual playground. To be a gentleman here, wrote one visitor from New Orleans, one must patronize a yellow miss. If a young buck has one or two discarded lemons, his credit rises in proportion to the number. Supposedly, in arrangements called plassage, young white men contracted with mixed-race women for long-term sex work. More temporary associations were arranged at balls that were limited to white men and nightgown-clad women of color, who were, as one irate white woman fumed, heaven's last, worst gift to white men. The complaints about New Orleans reflected the fact that many Southwestern whites wanted proper forms of sexual morality to govern the public culture of the region. But that plan collapsed. The explosive growth of the interstate slave trade relentlessly forced the commodification of enslaved women's sexuality into view. And no individuals were more directly responsible for that than the nation's biggest slave traders during Jackson's presidency. Tennessee-born Isaac Franklin and his partners, who included, in a way, both Nicholas Biddle and Andrew Jackson. During Jackson's first term in office, as impending Indian removal made it clear that new markets for slaves were about to open, Franklin's firm rode the rising demand to become the biggest slave-trading firm in the United States. By 1832, BUS lending in the lower Mississippi Valley was 16 times the 1824 level because that was where Biddle saw the opportunity to give the great staple of the country, cotton, assistance in bringing it into the commercial market. The massive injection of capital, directly and indirectly, financed an equally massive expansion of the internal slave trade. The well-connected Franklin firm, for instance, drew up to $40,000 at a time from the BUS to buy more slaves in the East. In fact, about 5% of all the commercial credit handled by the BUS in 1831 to 1832 passed at some point through the smooth hands of this single slave trading partnership. Yet somehow Franklin and his business partners, John Armfield and Rice Ballard, viewed themselves as lawless outsiders. When Ballard wrote Franklin asking him for an infusion of cash to pay short-term debts, Franklin wrote back, it would be hard if two such old robbers as yourself and John Armfield could not sustain yourselves. By robber, Franklin meant a smooth hand at the entrepreneurial business of the frontier, including the various legal and quasi-legal ways to make money from other people. Ballard could expertly financier, shave notes, sell people's debt to third parties for a profit, 
lose $4,000 in one round of cards and take $5,000 on the next, and judge a hand in the market, then drive her hard once he bought her. Sure, they took risks, but if they lose everything, one day, said Franklin, on the next, they can rob far more. Even their competitors, and the bill brokers, land speculators, and bank schemers who populated their circles were robbers, land pirates, they sometimes called each other. Perhaps land pirates view themselves as outsiders because some southeastern elites, reacting to the new abolitionist criticism of the early 1830s, were beginning to scapegoat slave traders again. Or maybe because Ballard was the sort of man who threatened to shoot a powerful Mississippi politician on sight if the man didn't start paying his debts. Politicians, meanwhile, passed laws restricting slave traders when it suited their needs, and Franklin and his friends habitually bent and broke those laws. And maybe the slave traders cultivated a sense of rule-breaking because of the way entrepreneurs at the cutting edge of economic expansion tend to sneer at old-fashioned risk-averse people. Less savvy slave buyers were, to Ballard, thick-headed gumps, who were not alert to the intricacies of skinning and shaving. The ultimate reason why the slave traders felt the kind of power experienced by an outlaw who gets away was half-hidden, but everybody knew about it. In 1834, Isaac Franklin wrote Rice Ballard from New Orleans, where Nat Turner panic had worn off and the trade in hands was once again going full tilt. Talking about himself in the third person, or not exactly as a person, Franklin wrote, The way your old one-eyed friend looked the pirate was a sin to Crockett, he said. Sin to Crockett was a slang term meaning astounding. Davy Crockett was a frontiersman turned stage performer turned congressman and author of a spectacularly exaggerated autobiography. And one-eyed friend, well here Franklin meant himself, but also a penis. In the same vein, Franklin continued, The fancy girl from Charlottesville, will you send her out or shall I charge you $1,100 for her? Say quick, I wanted to see her. I thought that an old robber might be satisfied with two or three maids. Starting in the early 1830s, the term fancy girl, or maid, began to appear in the interstate slave trade. It meant a young woman, usually light-skinned, sold at a high price explicitly linked to her sexual availability and attractiveness. For sale, a colored girl of very superior qualifications, what speculators call a fancy girl, a bright mulatto, fine figure, straight black hair, and very black eyes, very neat and cleanly in her dress and person. Abolitionist Ethan Allen Andrews toured John Armfield's Alexandria, Virginia slave pen in 1835 and reported that he was told that, though mulattoes are not so much valued for field hands, they are purchased for domestics and the females to be sold as prostitutes. Ironically, it was a wave of new white abolitionists inspired by William Lloyd Garrison and by the black voices he promoted in the pages of The Liberator, who did much to make sure everyone knew about the fancy. In a national campaign of pamphlets and anti-slavery books that blitzed the nation's postal networks in the 1830s, abolitionist critique focused on the way slavery disrupted family relationships and forced enslaved women into non-marital sex. The concerns of white moral reformers about the sexualized sale of women especially almost white ones, probably revealed much about the critics' preoccupations and repressions. But they didn't make it up, and enslavers were also preoccupied. 
Even before Andrew's depiction of the trade as forced prostitution, the customers and the impresarios of the slave market were writing with a leer about the women they used. I sold your fancy maid Alice for $800. There are great demand for fancy maid. I do believe that a likely girl and a good seamstress could be sold for $1,100, Isaac Franklin wrote to Ballard in 1833. He wanted Ballard to send more. I was disappointed in not finding your Charlottesville maid that you promised me, he wrote in 1834, referring to Ballard's latest shipment from his jail at Richmond. Soon, though, Isaac would have his turn, and then James Franklin, who two months later wrote to Ballard, The old man sent me your maid Martha. She is inclined to be compliant. Breaking the rules of evangelical public propriety delivered to these men the sense of illicit discovery that accompanies pornography. For many white Southern men, and not just slave traders, the existence of fancy girls put a piratical middle finger in propriety's face, which mattered not only because it irritated meddling abolitionists, but because it irritated white Southern women. Calls for sexual morality implied that women were the arbiters of domestic moral authority. This struggle over who would rule was the real meaning of the petticoat war in Jackson's cabinet, and in it the president leveraged male resentment of female claims to power. Who are politicians' wives to say whether or not John Eaton was a moral man for marrying Peggy, a former waitress who had, rumor suggested, offered more than drinks? There was no better way to show pious white women that they govern nothing than by buying a woman for sex. That was the meaning, for instance, of the gesture that slave trader Theophilus Freeman made when he received visitors to his New Orleans house while lying in bed with his purchased mistress, Sarah Connor. Take that, conventional white society, he said, for you'll never stop buying slaves from me. The lip-licking letters of Franklin and Ballard's firm, meanwhile, revealed their gleeful disdain for white women's social authority. I am getting damn tired of company, wrote a Ballard employee, briefly trapped at the high-toned White Sulphur Springs Resort in Virginia. I tell you, it would be a great relief to be at the Forks of Road among the darkies. After dining with a recently married couple, a Ballard associate, Bacon Tate, wrote that he had not sit at a table in a private house with white ladies for more than twenty years. And Isaac suggested that two women he purchased could soon pay for themselves by keeping a whorehouse for the exclusive benefit of the concern and its allied agents. Slave traders were not the only sexual pirates. They were just more likely than planters to testify about such things in their letters to one another. And dark-skinned women were no safer from this form of violence than mulatto ones whether from slave traders or other white men. Put a single man on a plantation as an overseer, and you will see trouble enough, wrote an Alabama planter, for they become intimate with the Negro girls, and then all order is at an end. The white men who initiated such encounters in the southwestern areas seemed to feel more entitled to them than those in the southeastern states, and less concerned about keeping such things secret. Louisiana planter Jacob Beeler carried on a lengthy relationship with bright mulatto Mary Clarkson, his slave. When Beeler's wife complained, he responded by threatening to beat her. In 1834, Mrs. Beeler finally ran away and sued for divorce. But to no small extent, the southwestern region was a free fire zone where white men exerted power without rules. In the southeastern states, enslaved husbands and male lovers possessed limited power to defend women 
but at least they were impediments that white men had to calculate. Southwestern male predators enhanced their power by stripping away husbands and other allies on whom women might call. At 13, Louisa Piquet was the property of a Mr. Cook, whose bankruptcy reduced him to living in a mobile boarding house. He spent mornings sleeping off the previous night's drinking and gambling, and afternoons trying to get Louisa alone in his room. For a while, the white landlady protected Louisa. Instead of sending the slave girl, the woman took Cook the things he demanded, salt, a wash basin, his mended clothes. But eventually, Cook's creditors caught up to him. They sold light-skinned Louisa at the Mobile Slave Market to a Mr. Williams of New Orleans. He paid $1,400, a fancy price. Then Williams told Louisa that he and his wife had parted, and they boarded the next coastal steamer going to Louisiana. Soon as we started for New Orleans, Mr. Williams told me what he bought me for, Louisa later said. The word fancy can mean something highly decorative, or one can fancy something, desire it as something or someone to acquire. White men fancied a Louisa. White men used her to decorate their lives as commodities to be displayed. But being fancied carried over into the descriptions and pricing of all women, light or dark, house servant or field hand. Although descriptions of men emphasized size and sometimes skills, evaluations of women discussed their attractiveness. Girls and ordinary women bring $350 to $400, wrote Isaac Franklin in 1832, and a few of superior appearance at $500. Two boys have a mother here, wrote a New Orleans dealer to a man who had already bought the sons. She is about 36 years old, fine teeth, without any gray hairs, a mulatto. She is very anxious to go with them. Shall I buy her? She is very likely of her age and young-looking. Another trader described a 13-year-old girl, bright color, nearly a fancy for $1,135. She had potential. Another, a girl, size of Gilmer's girl, so far so good, evidently, but rough-faced, reducing her value. Even for field hands like John Knight's dark women, looks changed prices. Male buyers imagined times between days, hidden spaces between cotton rows. For the female half of the enslaved people traded and moved, sexual assault and exploitation shaped price and experiences. Traders manipulated buyers' fancies to make sales. We anticipate tolerably tough times this spring for one-eyed men wrote James Franklin to Rice Ballard in 1832. I have seen a handsome girl since I left Virginia that would climb higher hills and go further to accomplish her designs than any girl to the north, and she is not too apt to leave or loose her gold, and the reason is because she carries her funds in her lover's purse or in bank, and to my certain knowledge has been used, and that smartly, by a one-eyed young man about my size and age. Excuse my foolishness. Franklin, a one-eyed man, would use her lover's purse until he could manipulate other men's single-focused desires and get them to transfer their funds to his bank account. To understand why a slave trader would call himself a one-eyed man, one must view him in the context of a slave frontier world where white men saw their contests with other people as rendering the winner manly and the loser emasculated, enslaved, feminized. The slave trader, as a one-eyed man, 
wasn't just raping the women he bought and sold. He was also metaphorically raping his competitors. This was the same metaphorical world in which less wealthy white men opposed banks that used their deposits and taxes and productivity in order to create credit. Said banks then lent said credit to wealthy would-be aristocrats, men who wanted to replicate Granville County-style hierarchies on the frontier. This is why ordinary white men called on Andrew Jackson to save the country from inchoate but horrible threats to them as manly citizens. They wanted him to help potterize the BUS and all the other targets of resentment before it raped ordinary male citizens. And just as consequentially for what happened in the 1830s, Franklin and Ballard slipped incessantly between talking about the financial risk-taking of credit and collections on the one hand and sex with enslaved women on the other. The exploitation of enslaved women had existed since the beginnings of slavery in North America, but what was now emerging was different. The new trade branded and marketed the ability to coerce sexuality, priming white entrepreneurs to believe that the purchase of enslaved people as commodities offered white men freedoms not found in ordinary life. Fancy branded slave trading as sexy for sellers and buyers. From fancy maids to slave trading in general, they went on to financial risk in general. In the 1830s, when the real world test subjects on slavery's entrepreneurial frontier, primed by the sexual arousal built into the human commodity market, met with opportunities to buy more slaves, take out loans to expand their operations, or sell cotton, they were more likely than ever to chase short-term games with little thought for the future. North Carolina migrant Moses Alexander thought so, seeing the slave frontier as the epicenter of multiple types of profligacy. To raise my children in Alabama, I may possibly tell you my greatest objection, but I cannot write it, Alexander noted in the letter. But he saw Southwestern sexual license as part and parcel of risky Southwestern economic behavior. Speculation is the order of the day and stalks abroad in the country, he warned. Events would reveal that his estimate of one-eyed enslavers was correct. Stimulated by the domestic slave trade to think of themselves as rule-breaking one-eyed men who could always have their fancy, Southwestern entrepreneurs were planting the financial seeds of still more irrational choices. Enslavers would soon insist on taking on immense debt, but they underestimated the downside of that risk and eventually not only because they had been trained to feel that the universe had loaded the dice in their favor. People almost always misjudge downside risk when the prices of assets, such as slaves, are rising. They know intellectually that asset prices that have climbed in the past, whether Dutch tulip bulbs, Yazoo company stock, or subprime mortgage securities, have formed bubbles that eventually popped. But this time is always different. To most one-eyed men, the BUS seemed like a maiden aunt chaperone who frowned at any sign of a creeping hand. Enslavers benefited from bank-induced stability and steady credit expansion. But the BUS limited credit expansion and favored only a few entrepreneurs. Of course, there were other important reasons, even rational ones, why enslavers wanted to borrow more money. The more slave purchases they could finance, the more cotton they'd make, and cotton was the world's most widely traded product. It had an unending market. So the more cotton they made, the more they'd sell, and thus the more money they'd make. 
Owning more slaves enabled planters to repay debts, take profits, and gain property that could be collateral for even more borrowing. At the same time, it made sense that people with money wanted to lend it to entrepreneurs on slavery's frontier. People who have money want to lend it if they can make still more money doing so, especially if they can feel certain of repayment. Lending to the South's cotton economy was an investment not just in the world's most widely traded commodity, but also in a set of producers who had shown a consistent ability to increase their productivity and revenue. In other words, enslavers had the cash flow to pay back their debts. And their debts were secure, since enslavers owned a lot of valuable collateral. In fact, they owned the biggest pool of collateral in the United States. Two million slaves worth over one billion dollars. Not only was that almost 20% of all the wealth owned by U.S. citizens, but it was the most liquid part of that wealth, thanks to the efficiency of markets manned by professional slave traders and supplied with credit by a BUS-governed financial system. Potential lenders, such as the banks of Western Europe and their investors, the old and new upper classes whose savings Bering Brothers and the Bank of England pooled, wondered whether Biddle was perhaps not investing aggressively enough or passing on sufficient profits to Europeans who bought BUS bonds. Enslavers, meanwhile, wanted to transform their control over enslaved people's bodies into authority over their own credit. In 1827, a Louisiana enslaver had created a tool that might answer both tasks at once. J.B. Moussier was facing a lawsuit by Rogers and Harrison. Virginia-based slave trading partners to whom he owned $21,000 for 70 men, women, and children he had bought on a short-term, high-interest loan. What if, Moussier wondered, planters used slaves as collateral to raise capital overseas, from people who needed American cotton and sugar, and then used the capital to build a lending institution that enslavers themselves could control? Moussier took his idea to New Orleans politician entrepreneurs Edmund Forstel and Hugues Laverne, who engineered it into the Charter of the Consolidated Association of the Planters of Louisiana, CAPL, chartered by the state legislature in 1827. Here are the nuts and bolts of the CAPL. First, potential borrowers would apply to buy stock in the association. Their application accepted, they could mortgage slaves and land to the CAPL in order to pay for the stock. The stock would entitle them to borrow CAPL banknotes of up to half the value of the mortgaged property. To ensure that people would take these banknotes at face value, the founders needed a large reserve of hard cash. They planned to raise it by selling bonds on the financial markets of the Western world. Each bond would be $500 in face value, about the average price in the 1820s of a young enslaved man. A bond would reach maturity in 10 to 15 years, and it would pay investors 5% in annual interest. Lenders always want security, though, so how would the CAPL assure potential investors that the bonds would be worth their face value plus interest? Thomas Baring of Baring Brothers helped Laverne and Forstel to convince the state legislature to back the CAPL's bonds with the faith and credit of Louisiana. If loan repayments from planters failed and the bank could not pay off the bonds, the taxpayers of Louisiana were now obligated to do so. The state's commitment convinced the European securities market. In 1828, 
The CAPL received from Bering Brothers, its European brokers, the first receipts from bond sales that would ultimately total $2.5 million in sterling bills, redeemable for silver at the Bank of England. The bank started to lend out $3.5 million in new CAPL notes, printed by a London engraver, to planter stockholders. For the next dozen years, entrepreneurs working with legislatures in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and the territories of Arkansas and Florida replicated CAPL innovations in a series of new banks. Many were bigger, generated more capital, and sold even more bonds than the CAPL. The tens of thousands of enslaved people named in their documents were still used as collateral mortgaged to a lender, which was now a local bank like the CAPL. But the bank's bonds securitized the slave mortgages. Securitization is the pooling of debt from many borrowers so that it can be sold off in uniform chunks, reducing the risks inherent in lending to one person at a time. Now, all bond buyers would share in the profits of the CAPL while being shielded against the kind of catastrophic individual losses a single lender would suffer if, say, a borrower's slaves died in mass at a malaria-infested labor camp or if floods destroyed a cotton crop. The financial product that such banks as Bering Brothers were selling to investors in London, Hamburg, Amsterdam, Paris, Philadelphia, Boston, and New York was remarkably similar to the securitized bonds, backed by mortgages on U.S. homes, that attracted investors from around the globe to U.S. financial markets from the 1980s until the economic collapse of 2008. Like the CAPL bonds, mortgage-backed securities shifted risk away from the immediate originators of loans onto financial markets while promising to spread out and thus minimize the consequence of individual debtors' failures. Investors who purchased latter-day mortgage-backed securities plan to share in streams of income generated by home buyers' mortgage payments. Likewise, the faith bonds of the 1830s generated revenue for investors from enslavers' repayments of mortgages on enslaved people. This meant that investors around the world would share in revenues made by hands in the field. Thus, in effect, even as Britain was liberating the slaves of its empire, a British bank could now sell an investor a completely commodified slave not a particular individual who could die or run away, but a bond that was the right to a one-slave-sized slice of pie made from the income of thousands of slaves. Typically, credit brings risk. For the borrower, there is the risk of not being able to pay, and for the lender, the risk that he will not be repaid. The CAPL model shifted risks away from both the immediate lender, a bank, and the borrower, in fact, the faith bonds shifted or socialized risk onto two groups of people. The first was the enslaved. Their own hands would have to repay the loans. And if their owners did not pay their debts, the enslaved people themselves would be foreclosed upon. Second, if neither bank revenues nor foreclosure sales of human collateral could pay back the bondholders, the citizens of the state would have to redeem the bonds with their own taxes. The fact that popularly elected legislatures repeatedly supported such bond schemes is therefore remarkable. After all, many elements of the intensely democratic frontier electorate saw banks as machines designed to channel financial benefits and economy-governing power to unelected elites. 
but advocates of the new banks often posed as competitors to much-resented factions favored by the hated BUS. When Mississippi's newly democratized legislature considered the possibility of chartering a new bank, its backers insisted that doing so would provide competition to Stephen Duncan's Bank of Mississippi. That bank's aristocratic pack of supporters ridiculed the notion of anybody but Dr. Duncan and Gabriel Titchener knowing anything about banking or even being able to put their feet in a bank except as petitioners, or so claimed a board member for the new institution. Enhancing the effect of the rhetorical device of posing new banks as democratic blows against established cliques was the sudden increase in opportunities for putting credit to use. After the passage of Indian removal, the U.S. government imposed the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek on the Choctaws, opening 11 million Mississippi acres to sale. Federal treaty makers' agreements with the Chickasaw, meanwhile, transferred another 7 million. Potential bank borrowers imagined what they would do with the land. A thousand avenues are wide open here for money-making, as one Mississippian slaver wrote, such as planting, shaving paper, buying and selling other people's debt for profit, or speculating by buying and selling all kinds of property. Robert Walker, a supporter of the new bank, wrote that Kentucky's coming, Tennessee's coming, Alabama's coming, Georgia's coming, California's coming, Virginia's coming, and they're all coming to join the joyous crowds of Mississippians. The new banks were bound to find themselves in conflict with the BUS monopoly on financial and monetary control, but the CAPL showed borrowers, bankers, slave traders, and other entrepreneurs an accessory pathway around Nicholas Biddle. And they traveled in that direction hand-in-hand with Andrew Jackson and his administration. Jackson supposedly hated all banks, but his policies would lead to explosive growth in both new banks and new lending. Even more ironically, Nicholas Biddle did at least as much as Jackson to create a new financial environment in which CAPL-style innovations could run wild as one-eyed men demanded. From 1828 onward, Biddle had tried to court both Jackson and other Southwestern entrepreneurs. Yet neither Biddle's visits to the Oval Office nor a dramatic surge of BUS credit into Southwestern channels changed the minds of the bank's opponents. These included not only resentful planters, but also radicals, like the members of the Philadelphia Working Men's Party, who attacked the disproportions of wealth that were emerging in eastern urban centers. The bank's monopoly control over American credit, complained one worky spokesman, enabled some men to live in splendor on the labor of operatives. Then there were those who still resented the bank's role in the troubles of 1819, such as Jackson's close advisor, Amos Kendall. Even Bering Brothers, long-term BUS trading partners, were beginning to perceive Biddle's regulatory power as an impediment to CAPL-style endeavors. Biddle's administration contacts hinted to the bank that an extension of its charter, which expired in 1836, was a real possibility. But Jackson kept his cards close to the vest. By 1832, the uncertainty was driving Biddle crazy. And even though Jackson's more pro-bank counselors told the bank president to avoid pushing, Biddle made an unwise decision. The suave Kentuckian Henry Clay, Jackson's inevitable 1832 opponent for the presidency, persuaded the vulnerable Philadelphian to try to back old Hickory into renewing the bank's charter before the election. Clay believed he could trap Jackson on a dilemma. If Jackson vetoed the recharter, 
Old Hickory would lose the electoral votes of ProBank Pennsylvania. If Jackson signed the bill, he would blur the lines between himself and Clay, blunting the enthusiasm of his most fervent foot soldiers. In June, the Clay-manipulated Senate passed a bill reestablishing the BUS for another 20 years. Southwestern senators split on the issue. Louisiana's delegation supported it. So did Mississippi's George Poindexter. BUS loans financed his extravagant lifestyle. But Mississippi's other senator stood against it with those of Tennessee and Georgia. On July 3, the House followed suit with its approval. The next day, Martin Van Buren, who was replacing Calhoun as the vice presidential candidate on Jackson's ballot, found the president sick in bed. The old general squeezed Van Buren's hand and struggled to sit upright. The bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it, he said. Back in 1815 at New Orleans, Edward Pakenham had also thought he had Jackson trapped. Pakenham died on a sugarcane field. Over the next week, alternating between his sick bed and meetings with a hard core of anti-bank advisors, Martin Van Buren, Maryland's Roger B. Taney, and Amos Kendall, Jackson worked up an essay that supported what he was about to do. On the 10th, he announced his veto of the bank recharter. This was an unprecedented act. No president, opponents would charge, had vetoed an act passed with overwhelming support by both houses, simply because he personally disagreed with the policy it enacted. Yet Jackson asserted an idea of power in a representative government that showed why less wealthy white men supported him with such ferocious loyalty. In the president's veto message, he argued that all white male citizens were precisely equal in political rights and power. The government should not favor anyone, and in particular, it should not fulfill the self-interested wishes of the wealthy over the will of the majority. This was no mindless critique of government. He did not agree with, for instance, the D.D. Tadpole-eating crew, as one Tennessee Jacksonian called South Carolina's nullifiers. Instead, said Jackson, if government would confine itself to equal protection and, as heaven does when it rains, shower its favors alike on the high and the low, the rich and the poor, it would be an unqualified blessing. But in Jackson's judgment, the bank did not measure out equal justice. Instead, it used the government's favor to make the rich richer and the potent more powerful. The federal charter, government deposits in the bank, and monopoly power over the workings of the economy, enabled the BUS to make its stockholders a privileged order, clothed both with great political power and enjoying immense pecuniary advantages from their connection with the government. Congress exploded. The reaction was so furious, in fact, that Biddle believed the electorate would punish Jackson at the polls. One individual, wrote Biddle, has opposed his will to the deliberate reflections of the representatives of the people. And indeed, the fall 1832 election was an epic moment that helped crystallize the coalitions of voting blocs and politicians into modern political parties. Henry Clay's supporters, outraged at the veto, included the National Republicans, who had supported John Quincy Adams. They linked up with former Jackson supporters who thought the National Bank was necessary and believed that the general's veto had broken all restraints on the executive branch. Also joining them were supporters of moral and economic improvement who believed that Jackson's followers ignorantly opposed progress. 
Young Abraham Lincoln, for instance, was the only reader in his family, the one who had left his father Thomas's farm in the woods. He had walked all the way to the Illinois frontier town of Salem Creek to work in a store and read law. Abraham Lincoln was also the only one in his family who joined the brand new party of Jackson's opponents, the Whigs. Clay's opponents included most of Jackson's core constituencies from the 1828 election. In the veto summer, their representatives united at the first-ever National Convention of the Democratic Party. They included many southeastern and southwestern enslavers who lacked personal connections to merchants and bankers. The Democrats also included small farmers, tenants, and the rural landless of the southern and northwestern frontiers, urban workers, and Robert Potter sitting in the Granville County Jail. Everyone energized by Jackson's assertive refusal to accept anything less than white male equality. The BUS openly subsidized Clay's presidential campaign. In so doing, it did much to prove Jackson's points, which Biddle foolishly publicized by having tens of thousands of copies of the veto message distributed throughout the country. He thought that everyone who read it would agree that Jackson had produced a manifesto of anarchy addressed to a mob. But when all the votes were cast, Biddle's mob, or in Jackson's terms, the people, has sustained the president's veto of the pro-bank Congress, re-electing Jackson by a clear majority in both popular and electoral votes. Anyone who understood at the sub-rational level why Robert Potter's support increased with each conflict he fought against the Granville County elite would also understand why Clay and Biddle and the BUS went down to inglorious defeat in November 1832. The destruction of the BUS definitively established popular but white males-only democracy as a winning play in the U.S. political competition. White men forced to the margins of the changing U.S. economy usually chose the Democrats as their political home and would do so for the next 14 decades. Frontier enslavers, even if they were outside of the old bank cliques, didn't want the same kind of democracy that Jackson's hottest partisans among common white men wanted. But the two groups could cooperate, at least during good times. Yet, even though Jackson believed he was acting to protect opportunity for all white men, his policies repeatedly gave the frontier's entrepreneurial elite exactly what most of them wanted. More Indian lands, more territories to the West for slavery, free trade for cotton, and, finally, destruction of all limits on their ability to leverage enslaved people's bodies as credit. The majoritarian philosophy of the new Democratic Party would be fatally alloyed by its commitment to both slavery's expansion and the unregulated, unstable economy that one-eyed entrepreneurs desired. But in the short term, the 1832 election convinced Jackson that the people now expected him to cut off the monster bank's power to divert the blessings of government to the well-connected and Jackson's most fervently populist followers had long been anticipating a moment of confrontation with the nefarious powers who they thought were scheming to steal the independence and equality promised to white men by American citizenship. The BUS charter allowed it to serve as the central bank until 1836, so Jackson pushed his advisors to find a legal or quasi-legal way to move against the bank. Finally, the president ordered Secretary of the Treasury, Louis McLean, to remove government deposits from the BUS. 
Instead, McLean issued a report showing that Biddle's staff had managed the deposits judiciously. So Jackson reshuffled his cabinet. Roger Taney eventually became the Secretary of the Treasury, and in September 1833, he began to draw down the $10 million in federal money that was still sitting in the BUS account. Needing somewhere to put federal money, the executive branch decided to distribute it among individual state-chartered banks. Those which are in hands politically friendly will be preferred, wrote one of Jackson's most trusted political operatives. The opposition press called the recipients of federal money the pet banks. The Union Bank of Nashville was the chosen pet for Tennessee, for instance. It just happened to have been founded by the brother-in-law of James K. Polk, Jackson's main political lieutenant in the state. The ranks of the pets soon expanded to over 30. While the eastern institutions that received federal deposits were conservative with the new influx of money, banks at the leading edge of southwestern expansion used government funds as an excuse to expand lending dramatically. Mississippi Pets directors knew that, after land sales in the Chickasaw and Choctaw sessions, government land offices would deposit hundreds of thousands of dollars. Anticipating these new reserves, which were also, they might have remembered, liabilities that could be withdrawn, the banks began to print and lend their own paper money. By late 1833, Mississippi banks had 20 times as much paper floating around the economy as they had gold in their vaults to back it up. From Columbus, Mississippi, a boom town in the state's northeastern corner, D.W. Jordan chortled, here I can make money money, to his North Carolina relatives. John Knight reported that Natchez cotton was 18 cents per pound. He wanted to buy a woman for his wife, and Isaac Franklin was now charging $1,000 for a well-schooled house servant. We shall do well this season, Franklin wrote. Back in Philadelphia, however, the Monster Bank still had claws. After Jackson's withdrawal of the deposits, Biddle fought back. In November 1833, the BUS began to call in all its loans. As he deliberately induced a massive recession, Biddle announced that, The other banks and the merchants may break, but the Bank of the United States shall not. Businesses closed down. Factories and workshops stood idle. Retail districts had no buyers. The slowdown threatened devastation to heavily leveraged planters and cotton merchants. Interest rates, offered to the brokers who flocked to New Orleans every fall to buy the cotton harvest, rose to 25%. Cotton purchases dropped, pushing the recession up the rivers into the Crescent City's vast watershed. In Mississippi, wrote one Natchez lawyer, times are very hard. The mad course of the president has caused more ruin in the country than was ever known before. Now, John Knight watched cotton prices plummet to nine cents per pound. The price of slaves followed. I tried every bank in this city for a check on the North, wrote a panicked Isaac Franklin from New Orleans, but none will. The bank here will not discount a dollar, confirmed his Natchez allies. Many blamed Jackson. Elite Southwestern Jacksonians turned apostate. Robert Walker previously one of Jackson's Mississippi political lieutenants, switched sides. Franklin Plumer was the only holdout, and he was reportedly wavering. Loyalist J.F.H. Claiborne expressed anti-bank views at a public meeting in Natchez and was physically assaulted and beaten by the mostly wealthy crowd. A torrent of complaints poured into the offices of congressmen. 
Philadelphia businessman John Wirtz wrote a letter imploring James K. Polk to use his personal and political influence to provide some remedy to check the impending evil. From Tennessee, John Welsh warned that even the enemies of the bank here freely admit that all this distress may be corrected by a return of the deposits to the U.S. bank. Henry Clay, meanwhile, organized the Senate to censure Jackson for removing the deposits. But the president refused to quail. When a delegation of businessmen visited Jackson, he said, Why do you come to me for, then? Go to Nicholas Biddle. We have no money here, gentlemen. Biddle has all the money. The bank, Jackson believed, was confirming the warnings of his veto message. His loyal followers agreed. Jackson loyalist Terry Kyle told James K. Polk the Tennessee bank allies were squealing that the mob was plotting a revolution in which the rich will be plundered by the rabble. But this kind of talk reinforced the Jacksonian claim that BUS supporters hated white men's democracy, while Jackson partisans cheered his attack on the bank. Crush it forever. It is a monopoly which ought not to exist among us. The recession winter of 1833 to 1834 was difficult, but by spring, the economy began to cooperate with Jackson. Good harvests in Europe and new supplies of precious metal for circulation in the Western economies raised consumer demand and lowered interest rates. But one of the most significant factors that turned the Southwestern economic climate from bank war to boom was the replication of the CAPL's slave bonds on a far vaster scale. The new banks began to appear right as the bank war began, starting with the Union Bank of Louisiana in 1832. Structured on the CAPL model, but significantly larger, the bank sold $7 million in faith bonds through the agency of the Barings. The proceeds of the faith bonds were to fund the capital-intensive projects of shareholders, in other words, to help them buy slaves, and back a massive commercial credit operation that would help move the annual pile of cotton from steamboat landings to Liverpool docks. By 1834, the Union Bank was taking up a lot of the slack left in New Orleans by the retreat of the BUS. In November 1834, it became a pet bank, opening access to another pool of money. Next, the state legislature established the Citizens Bank of Louisiana with $12 million in faith bonds, and then authorized several other smaller institutions. For instance, the Atchafalaya Railroad and Banking Company, capital $2 million. Louisiana's orgy of bank creation increased the number of the state's banks from 4 to 16 and expanded the total amount of authorized capital from $9 million to $46 million. By 1836, New Orleans had the densest concentration of banking capital in the country, outpacing Philadelphia and New York, and suggesting that Louisiana might become the nation's financial power center in the near future. The Florida Territory, with fewer than 100,000 residents, launched multiple banks, including its own Union Bank, for which it issued faith bonds. Alabama also funded its banking system with bonds, selling most to the Rothschilds of Paris, Europe's most powerful bankers. In 1832, the total amount of the bank loans available to Southwestern borrowers had been under $40 million, including $30 million lent by the BUS. By 1837, despite the retreat of the BUS, Southwestern bank loans soared to more than $80 million, one-third of the national total 
and more than that of any other region. The Southwestern legislatures had authorized significantly more banking capital in the 1930s than what the BUS had earlier applied to the economy of the entire United States. Although some of the banks were ostensibly chartered to create investment in the state's infrastructure, including railroads, or in the case of the New Orleans Gas, Light, and Banking Company, modern municipal utilities, the major purpose of the splurge was to rush seeds of growth into the fields of Southwestern entrepreneurs' dreams. In the course of a mere four years, from 1833 through 1836, 150,000 enslaved people were moved from the old states to the new. They cleared and planted and harvested millions of new acres, and the U.S. cotton crop doubled in size. Meanwhile, the bonds created by southwestern states, each one a guarantee of an income stream from the labor of mortgaged hands, found buyers in all of the major financial centers of the Western world. London, New York, Philadelphia, Amsterdam, Hamburg, Bremen, and Paris. Investors around the world voted their confidence in slavery's expansion. And rising London prices for southwestern securities, statistics demonstrate, pushed up slave prices in New Orleans. The irony is obvious, in hindsight. Andrew Jackson had mobilized common white male anger at arrogant, anti-democratic supporters of the BUS and its allies. He and his followers, from the lowliest voter to loyal congressman, metaphorically potterized Biddle and George Poindexter and all the members of the old southwestern bank vault factions that had monopolized frontier opportunity and tried to tell ordinary citizens to keep quiet. In fact, cartoons of the day even depicted Jackson chopping off the penile snakeheads of a hydra-headed monster bank. Yet the destruction of the BUS and the ensuing deployment of banking innovations didn't make the Southern financial environment more democratic. For instance, when Franklin Plummer, the champion of the people of southeastern Mississippi, visited Natchez before the 1835 state elections, men who ran the new banks bought him a fancy carriage. Plummer then reversed his rhetoric against the use of state power to deliver bank goodies to insiders and campaigned for a slate of pro-bank candidates. When elected, these pro-bank state legislators sent Robert Walker to Washington as senator, deposing George Poindexter from office. Walker had depicted Poindexter as the servant of the Monster Bank, an arrogant opponent of white male equality. Now he and Plummer encouraged the Mississippi legislature as it chartered so many banks that by 1839, the state's total on-paper bank capitalization was $63 million, more than the national BUS at its largest. And old insiders managed to remain insiders. Stephen Duncan, leader of the old Natchez-based Planters Bank, launched a new bank, which the state legislature chartered. Henry Clay wrote his Mississippi allies in 1834, asking a Duncan ally to give his son a loan so that he could buy a Mississippi cotton plantation. I have a number of surplus slaves here, principally young and well adapted to a cotton plantation. Banker and planter were often the same. Ten of the top eleven borrowers from the Union Bank of Florida were members of its board of directors or immediate relatives thereof. While some charters required new institutions to distribute loans in a more geographically equal fashion than had predecessor banks, the new banks did nothing different from the BUS when it came to distributing credit to lower-class men. Thus, those who had derived political benefit from common white men's insistence on equal manhood 
replaced the BUS with an insider-favoring banking system. The people thought they had slain the monster, but the stumps sprouted new heads that feasted on the huge sums of capital being imported via European sales of state bonds that securitized slave mortgages. All of these innovations planted a crop of dramatic consequences. Securitization's ability to export risk away from the immediate lender enabled unregulated borrowers to expand leverage without end. Here's how the equation worked. In 1835, a cousin told Anna Whitaker that each of his hands made $500 last year, raising cotton in Mississippi. If remotely true, that kind of revenue would mean a return of over 30% per year. Enslavers with access to bank credit could now borrow money on slaves at 8%. The margin between anticipated returns on borrowed capital and its cost to borrow was thus huge, and the direct risk appeared to be negligible. State-guaranteed slave mortgage bonds dispersed much of the immediate risk of borrowing to others, to bondholders, to taxpayers, and above all, to the enslaved. In addition, entrepreneurs themselves, including judges, politicians, and state officials, controlled debt collection in their states, making it less likely that elite borrowers would be foreclosed, even if they fell behind on payments. Banking elites had the recourse of socializing the losses, making the whole population pay off the debts of failed enterprises, just as the old plumer pre-carriage and the old walker pre-bank war had once warned. So as enslavers multiplied their leverage, they multiplied their revenue without increasing their individual risk. In response to these clear incentives, enslavers created still more ways to leverage slaves into still more leverage. They mortgaged the same collateral from multiple lenders. They used slaves bought with long-term mortgages to bluff lenders into granting unsecured commercial loans. Above all, they kept buying more slaves on credit. Even if they ran into problems, they figured they would still win because they could sell their assets, for the slave prices were still rising. Yet the consequences of seemingly infinite and risk-free leverage were perverse, and not just because sexual predation helped stoke the risk-taking atmosphere. Securitization enabled both the immediate borrower and immediate lender to escape the direct consequences of risk. Economists call this moral hazard even as they dramatically increase the total risk accumulated in the financial system. The multiplication of total leverage dramatically amplified the general consequences of a potential setback, such as a sudden decline in the cotton prices by which enslavers multiplied pounds picked per hand to calculate anticipated revenue. Yet, by late 1834, few were thinking about such possibilities, the biggest boom yet seen in the history of slavery's expansion began to swell as money from the new southwestern banks seeded the region with enslaved hands ready to meet a sudden increase in European demand. In 1832, cotton brought nine cents per pound. By 1834, a woman reported from the Huntsville slave market, cotton at 13 cents has turned their heads. In 1835, cotton hit an ecstasy-inducing 18 cents per pound and demand for slaves kept soaring. I have just returned from Charlottesville court, great many buyers, and Negroes was scarce and high, reported Rice Ballard's employee from a buying trip along the Blue Ridge Mountains. People here are run mad with speculation, wrote one visitor to the former Chickasaw land in northeastern Mississippi.
they do business in a kind of frenzy. Gold is scarce, but credit is plenty. In 1835, government land offices in Mississippi sold 2.9 million acres, more than had been sold in the entire nation in 1832. A few found frenzy worrisome. We have not yet reached the neighborhood of a sufficiency of banking capital, but taking this as true, I would prefer to approach the point gradually, and not with such rapid strides, wrote a Louisiana man in 1835, after the legislature chartered four banks in two days. Cheap land was vanishing, wrote a migrant to newly organized Noxabee County, Mississippi. Speculators and capitalists all have an idea to it. I have never in my life seen such a rush for land. Next, he predicted, came the forced migrants. This country will be a perfect Negro quarter, who, underfed by gambler planters, will kill your pigs, hogs, and cows. I feel the effects of it already. But the tunnel vision of one-eyed men seemed to be working. Banks were lending, and land bought by speculators at the government minimum of $1.25 sold at $20 per acre. The clanking of chains rose from the roadways leading into the courthouse towns. Entrepreneurs looked at their ledgers, at bales stacked by the landing, and at the men and women trudging out to the springtime field. Light-skinned women stood in front of tables where traders poured their drinks and negotiated a price. Prosperity trickled credit further down the chutes and slides of the southwestern economy into the pockets of slaveholders, overseers, and random white men with smooth tongues. Like Anne Royal, cresting the hill and rounding the Alabama Bend back in 1819, most white Southwesterners thought they could see, spread out before them, a glorious future shining in a bubble. It looked like the first day when 10,000 little seedlings in the cotton field had obviously become a host of young plants. The green muscled its way upward into the sight of the slave owner's focused eye. Who knew how miraculous the crop of his seed might become? context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade, uh, that is the first audio segment. Uh, one more. This is, I think, the first time that we actually ended uh, with the end of a chapter. So that is the end uh, of chapter seven. End of chapter seven. So we'll pick up for the second audio seg uh, segment uh, with chapter eight. Uh, folks uh, would like to comment the number to dial. Six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. The number again six four one. Seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. For folks who do not want to use your phone uh, to call, you can use the free Vope line. Uh, works anywhere in the world. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, for those who are not listening uh, at BTR, uh, you can put in this address. It is tiny, T-I-N-Y, 
Race.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one. The address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put that address in, uh, you'll see the link on the left of the page for the vote caller. Click that link. It will open up a small window on your screen. Uh, the top line, it's a drop-down menu. Uh, select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. Uh, the next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564-943. The final line, it will ask for a name. You can use your real name if you're comfortable with that. You can put a nickname. You can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, once you get all that information uh, submitted, click the green button at the bottom, and it will connect you to the program. Uh, you should be able to hear us live. Uh, it's the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do that, you should hear the audio prompt. Press the number one, and I'll see your hand. We'll get you on the line. Uh, if you have comments you would like to share, uh, feel free to chime in. Fascinating metaphors this week. <laughs> if you have uh, commentary you'd like to share, uh, feel free to chime in. Um, pull my switchboard up just a little up. Uh, Mr. Demery4 uh, should be with us. I will nab other hands as I see folks. Uh, good to hear from you, Mr. Demery4. Yes, ma'am. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, like you said, it's some interesting metaphors in this week's reading. But, you know, a couple of things I picked up. The, the use of the word one-eyed men. I gathered for white men that kept fancy maids and fancy maids being an acronym for black enslaved women uh, that they uh, sexualized uh, during their enslavement. Uh, uh, two million slaves worth over one billion dollars through forming the uh, consolidated Association of the Planners of Louisiana, the CAPL, they were able to mortgage slaves as well as land and turn them into banknotes. Uh, basically, um, just turning human beings into bonds and as a means of credit. And forming this corporation, I suspect that some of the slave owners uh, probably ended up losing a lot of land and human beings that they had uh, kept enslaved through this process. Uh, I see now why Andrew Jackson's statue 
stands in Jackson Square in New Orleans, Louisiana, and how much Andrew Jackson meant to or means even now to these races. You know, he's, uh, to me, has gained and surpassed Bill Tillman in his racist uh, activities. This guy uh, even sought to incorporate all other white men, uh, making them rich uh, through the mistreatment and use of black bodies. And with the way that they treated the fancy maids and probably some of the men also, I think that that makes these white slave owners as the nation's first and biggest pimps. And I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thanks, Dust Technical. For sure, for sure. Uh, if other folks have commentary, feel free. Uh, get a hand up uh, for folks' favorites, uh, favorite subject matter. Um, looking back over some of the things that stood out uh, from this chapter. Actually, I had uh, two different pages of notes. I have to pull my other one up as well. Uh, okay. Uh, before I even get to some of the things that stood out in this book, um, the book Colonialism and Homosexuality uh, stood out quite a bit. I've been trying to see if we could get that author on the program uh, for years. Uh, he's a white man who wrote the book. Uh, he's in Australia. Uh, but a lot of what we heard during the kind of first section of the audio this week uh, just reminded me uh, of that book. But it's called uh, Colonialism and homosexuality. Uh, you should not have that much difficulty uh, picking it up if you are interested in, in reading a book that is pretty much exclusively focused on uh, Area 8 and uh, exclusively focused on white men sexually terrorizing uh, non-white males all over the planet. And I think most of it is uh, not even focused on the U.S., just other parts of the world where they went out to stomp and, and trample on non-white people. Anywho, uh, with this section of the text, um, oh, I normally I normally get other people, I normally let all the callers go first um, so that I'm not stepping on any of the comments that they might share. Uh, so I, I did see Roz's hand. Roz, if you had a uh, commentary you wanted to uh, share, feel free. Hi, yes, we didn't see you guys and to all the callers and listeners. Yeah, this section was really something. Um, yeah, there was a few things I wanted to bring up and try and keep it brief. Um, on page 238, there's a brief section that says, uh, in one case, South Carolina Governor James Henry Hammond bought a woman and her daughter. The mother became his sexual partner. When her daughter reached 12, he made the girl his victim as well. He also molested his four white nieces, creating a scandal that ruined their marital prospects. Its effects on him were temporary. However, he was elected to U.S. Senate. And it just really, this, that, that one thing um, just brings me, reminds me of our Cynical Africans website, just the sick deviance that white people are capable of. And, and just the fact that he can rape a 12-year-old child, then rape his own daughters. Um, like I look at some of the stories we see in the news 
where uh, black men or sometimes even black women might do these sorts of things to their children. And we're seeing like the origins of the deviance that we practice following in their footsteps. And this is like a prime example of like the type of stuff they would do to us that would somehow become a part of our cultural uh, behavior just due to that exposure and that repeated abuse and terrorism. And then uh, there was a brief section beneath that on the same page that said, supposedly in arrangements called, called placage, young white men contracted with mixed race women for long-term sex work. More temporary associations were arranged at balls that, limit, that were limited to white men and nightgown clad women of color who were, as one irate white woman fumed, heaven's last and worst gift to white men. Now, this kind of speaks to, um, to me, it's, it's, it's a Dr. Welsing moment because for white women to say that they were heaven's last and worst gift to white men really speaks to the addiction that white men have with uh, non-white females in regards to uh, their, their melanin deficiency and, their, and basically speaks to both what my, white men and white women's um, feeling of in, feelings of inadequacy in regards to their lack of pigmentation. And um, I just found it interesting because the way that they set up the system, if we look at traditional African societies, we never had prostitutes in those societies simply because of the family structure. So when, when I look at what was done to us on the plantation, the destruction of the black family was so essential for them to establish a system of, of prostitution of our women on a scale that was just unprecedented in history. And when you come from an environment in which there was no abuse, but actually quite a, quite a high reverence and veneration for the African woman to, to, to a society in which she was debased and used and abused and terrorized and passed around between these white men, you can see a lot of the origins of the things that we hear in these rap songs that these young, young black males are speaking about, and it's just a complete denigration of black women, again, following in the footsteps of the white slave master. And on the following page, um, 239, it was very interesting, their play on the term robber, where they said that uh, by robber, Franklin, Franklin meant smooth hand, an entrepreneurial business of the frontier. And they just go into the whole thing of how they take a term like robber and try to make it uh, a more benign term than the actual, speaking of the malignant cancerous behavior that the term robber actually dealt with. And it kind of brought me again to, uh, to hip hop and the ter use of the term nigger and how uh, some black males will say that this is a term of endearment or just trying the whole idea of us uh, so-called changing the word to something again, seemingly benign, completely ignoring the history of that term as a, as a, a, a nuclear warhead in the psychology of, of black people. Um, so that really stood out to me as well. And let me see. Oh, the section on uh, 240, where the, it says abolitionist Ethan Allen Andrews uh, toured John Armfield's Alexandria, Virginia slave pen in 1835 and reported that he was told that though mulattoes are not so much value for field hands, they are purchased for domestics and females to be sold as prostitutes. Again, this kind of speaks to, um, to me like a lot of times when I was growing up, in studying racism in, in African history, I would sometimes listen to uh, lighter skinned black people arguing with darker skinned black people as to who suffered the worst. And there really is just, there's no way for us to even think on that level anymore because we were all on the same level. And it's just that they had different applications of torture to, to the different groups. 
based on their psychopathology. And we really have to discard that whole ideology that some of us suffered worse than others. We all went through pure hell and we're still going through pure hell. And um, none of us are really going to be able to, to get out of it until we start to codify our behavior and go towards a liberation mindset. And, um, Oh, the section on the following page at the bottom of page 241, where they said slave traders were not only only sexual pirates, they were more likely more they were uh, excuse me they were just more likely than planters to testify about such things in their letters to one another. And dark skinned women were no safer from this form of violence than mulatto ones, whether from slave traders or other white men. Put a single man on a plantation as an overseer, you will see trouble enough, wrote an Alabama planter, for they become intimate with the Negro girls and all order is at an end. The white men who initiated such encounters in the southwestern areas seem to feel more entitled to them than those in the southeastern states and less concerned about keeping such things secret. Um, I just found that whole section really to speak to the fact that when white people are left to their own devices. They are just complete savages. They, they, you know, it's funny because cynical African says all the time, um, white people really are the only people on earth who don't know what to do with their genitals. They will do just about anything, um, with their bodies and, and, and to our bodies essentially, um, with their sick mentality. And this really speaks to that, that lawlessness that comes with white people left to their own, uh, devices. And then there was a section actually above that that uh, says for many white on the same page, it says uh, for many, many white Southern men, not just slave traders, the existence of fancy girls put piratical middle, put a piratical middle finger in propriety's face, which mattered not only because it irritated meddling abolitionists, but because it irritated white Southern women. And this really speaks to the fact that white people do not get along with each other either. Um, no matter how much uh, false honor and pride white men seem to give to white women in their torturing and killing of black males for even thinking about white women, ultimately they don't get along at all. And the only time that they can work together is when they maintain the system of white supremacy. Again, if they didn't have us to torture and kill and, and, and have as their sexual playthings, they would literally annihilate one another as well. And that goes back to their old history as well as their new history, their uh, current history right now. And then uh, there was a very interesting section on page 243 that says, to understand why a slave trader will call himself a one-eyed man, one must view him in the context of a slave frontier world where white men saw their contest with other people as rendering the winner manly and the loser emasculated, enslaved, feminized. The slave trader as a one-eyed man wasn't just raping the women he bought and sold. He was also metaphorically raping his competitors. And this kind of... um brought me to the story of uh, Truganini, the last Tasmanian, who was brutally raped by 10, she was the last female Tasmanian, and she was brutally raped by 10 men, I believe, in front of her husband, and then they put her husband to death after they forced him to watch them terrorize and rape her. And um, it really just speaks to another thing that I, there was a uh, show that came on, I think it was History Channel 2, called The Vikings. And um it was something that I was looking for, looking at in a codified way to kind of understand that particular aspect of white people's history. And throughout that series, 
the cunning deviance that white women use as far as applying sex as a tool to f facilitate the murder of other men is phenomenal in that program. And as I started to research the Vikings, I started to find out even more information about the fact that whenever they took over another group of people, the first thing they would do is rape and terrorize the men as well as the women, but they made it a very special thing to rape and terrorize the men as well, to completely emasculate them and then force them to watch them rape their women. So it was, it's the same thing that we have done, that we, we have had done to us um, intergenerationally. And it really speaks to the, the mental illness that we suffer under as a people because of that, that total and complete annihilation of what Dr. Wilson said, our own our black self-respect um, through just, just systematic torture and terrorism for, for 500 years. And um, finally, I wanted to speak to the CAPL. They really speak to, the sexual and CAPL really speaks to the origins, like the very beginnings of the criminal Wall Street model as far as um, the entire financial engine being built on the backs of black people. And just the fact that you can foreclose on a human being is just is unfathomable, but fathomable in the system of white supremacy. And I think if black people were to, to all black people were to just read that section of the book, it would really bring home just how much this entire system, we are like literally the heart and blood of this entire system to this very day. And if we could start to codify our behavior, especially in the realm of, of uh, stopping anti-blackness, and also in the realm of codifying how we look at white people and being completely suspect of every one of them, racist man, racist woman, racist child, I think it'll bring us, I mean, just leagues ahead of where we are right now. Thank you very much, and I'll meet my line there. For sure, for sure. Next chapter uh, is titled Blood. We'll pick it up on Chapter 8 when we begin uh, the second audio segment. Caller in Florida, did you have commentary you wanted to share as well? Caller in Florida, retired firefighter. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I, uh, don't have, uh, the book or anything. And, you know, I'm just going by, uh, you know, from listening to the, uh, the, uh, the, the person reading the, uh, the uh, information from the book, but, uh, what's been going through my mind, uh, you know, through the series is, is the question, and I've mentioned it before, uh, are people who call themselves white are redeemable? Uh, I totally agree with Mr. Fuller and his objectives as far as uh, 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 codification, and eventually it will come to uh, one day when when uh, the system of racist white supremacy would be effectively uh, eliminated and replaced with a system of justice. But I can't see white people at all being in any place of authority in that process at all. Uh, anybody that, that, any group of people that can uh, interact with other people in the manner in what we are listening to, it's, it's to me, it's impossible that they can they can change their behavior and somehow uh, come back into some sort of uh, human uh, humanity type of a uh, uh, form to cooperate with others. Uh, 
uh, I, I just can't, I just can't see that happening, you know, right now. And I'm not, it's not, it's not coming from an emotional standpoint. It's coming from a scientific standpoint, uh, to whereas because you still see the results of of this science of this scientific weaponry that was placed upon us, you still see it today. Uh, as uh, as so someone someone and I suspect people like Andrew Jackson, they were they their their plans were were projected toward the future to the, to where they would know that this would materialize into what we're talking about today. Uh, you can't convince me otherwise, uh, as far as that concern uh, of the uh, and 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 the relationship that that white females have with non-white females, especially black females, it, from my observations, is very deceitful. The, the, it's the epitome of what deceitful deceitfulness is. Uh, and that, that's, that's the best I can give as far as the relationship is concerned. And by me hearing uh, from this scientific uh, means of how non-white black people were treated, in such a professionally evil manner, uh, uh, it's not a surprise that the same things, the remnants, not the remnants of, but the results of it, is still going on today. I mean, it's no different. What's the, what's the program with the uh, non-white black lady? That's that's a uh, uh, basically is a uh, 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 dead lady for presidents. That the programs come on today. What's the name of that program? Scandal. Scandal. I mean, no different, no different in the, in the relationship. If, and, 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 and now the technology has it where it could be, it could be portrayed and shown all over the world, continuously, uh, in film, in film, uh, uh, and and therefore, you know, a lot of people mimic it in their personal lives, you know, perhaps. But uh, it's, you know, I mean. Very, very, very informal to informal. If uh, one is confused about, well, why are things are going on today? All you have to do is just research books like this, and uh, it would kind of like uh, put you on the page to understanding uh, if the person's mind is open enough to accept what they are listening to and what they're studying. Uh, I would, I would dare say that a lot of non-white people. At the point we're still at the point we won't even believe a lot of this stuff, you know, you know for, that people can be this 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 uh, uh, terrible, you know. They don't they don't want to believe it as far as they're concerned. But uh, you know, very interesting book, and uh, uh, I'll let somebody else uh, chime in. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, right. If other folks have comments. Uh, just get a hand up. We have uh, about 20 minutes, uh, 25 minutes or so uh, before we get to the second audio segment. <clears throat> Thought I was going to sneeze. Um, uh, before I get to some of my comments, I just was going to add as well, for any of the folks uh, who, when they make films, uh, the Nat Turner flick is supposed to be coming out soon, Nate Parker's project, that was big news this week, 12 Years a Slave, uh, even, you know, the monstrosity Django Unchained, when you hear people talk about those projects and say, oh my gosh, you know, the brutality, and it was so savage, I would say, you know, when you can try a book like this, 
compared to those, those projects are tame, even those are not giving you the full force brutality of what was happening uh, and what continues to happen. But I mean, even if we're focused on, you know, things that happen antebellum, earlier forms of white supremacy, it, it does not compare uh, to what we heard this week. I didn't hear anything uh, or see anything in those uh, films about, you know, 10, 11 year old black children uh, being raped uh, and this being done on a, on a regular basis. This is an everyday thing. I, I don't remember seeing any of that uh, in any of those uh, projects or, you know, we're going to kill uh, 120 black people in, in one swoop. Uh, just that sort of thing happening on a whim. Every other day, no big deal, whoop de doo. Um, just it's really difficult to capture uh, the truthfulness uh, the, and be as accurate as possible with regards to uh, the terrorism that has been heaped on white people in a very methodical and scientific manner uh, by whites for centuries. That said, uh, getting to the book, uh, I think where he started off and he's talking about this, uh, I guess, conflict between these uh, so-called Victorian ideals of morality and uh, you're, you're not supposed to be doing all of this uh, crude sexual behavior and, you know, let's let's try to behave ourselves and have some discipline and you can't be running around chasing uh, every, you know, female and what have you and you're supposed to save all that for marriage. Uh, it is, I mean, you have nothing but hypocrisy uh, and lies, just layers and layers and layers uh, of, of just bold-faced lies and hypocrisy uh, throughout the history of racism, white supremacy, where you get all these ideals of, yeah, we're, we're, we're supposed to be saving ourselves for marriage, and uh, we're, I'm just committed here, and I'm not running around. And even if you are married, you, maybe we have that front that we portray outwardly, and then if you check, uh, to see what's happening, it's Bill Clinton. Uh, if you want a present-day illustration or uh, Donald Sterling, another present-day illustration, uh, what we heard uh, in this book where every other person is Thomas Jefferson or whomever else, these white people, uh, where they're married and then slipping around. I think the person, I'll uh, get his name once I flip the uh, page here, South Carolina again, Mr. Ben Tillman, but uh, former Governor James Henry Hammond, uh, where he's married, he's got his white wife, and his children, but he's still slipping out and raping black females and even raping his own children. Uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, Roz brought up that he can do all of this and still uh, be elected. No big deal. We don't care. Not just a rapist, uh, a pedophile. I didn't, I didn't, that word was not used uh, in the text, even though I'm, I'm glad he spelled out all the details uh, of what uh, Mr. Hammond did, but that's another one in my view that that term just doesn't seem to get applied uh, when white people are engaged in this activity. Child rapists and pedophiles, that is, is really should be front and center anytime that we're talking about slavery because this is standard operating procedure in terms of what uh, whites were doing. Yes, everybody uh, was being raped, males, females, uh, older uh, black people as well, but a lot of this was focused on children, black children, uh, black boys and black girls and their whole uh, books uh, that are written about that that really capture and emphasize that aspect of it. And that's, that's why I said even even when you get these type of films and what have you, they really are uh, minimizing uh, and diluting uh, the, the terrorism that was uh, inflicted upon us and is still happening today. Uh, he had a sentence. I don't know if we have uh, black female listeners 
Uh, but the sentence before, it's kind of uh, the top part of the paragraph where he's talking about uh, what Governor Hammond did in South Carolina. But the sentence reads, uh, of course, some women of African-American descent used their sexuality to create a little leverage for themselves. Um, it, it, to me, it just it stood out uh, immediately. Um, I am a slave. He didn't even say slave there. He just said, of course, some women of African-American descent. Uh, if these are slaves, enslaved black people, um, certainly you, you try to do the best that you can and make the best of your situation. But it just uh, it seemed like a sentence where he could have been practicing racism, white supremacy uh, in, in saying that these slaves are using their sexuality to manipulate uh, terrorist torturing whites. Uh, and that just, it's, I mean, struck me. I mean, the minimum I could say is that is, that is astounding. That is absurd, if not just out and out white supremacist uh, to even make a statement such as that. Uh, but I was curious if there were any black female listeners who had uh, any thoughts on that statement specifically. Um, on the same, it, for me, it's on the same page. The term uh, plaquage, uh, I, might, I hope I'm saying it correctly, uh, he says, uh, this is uh, young white men contracted with, quote unquote, mixed race women for long term sex work. Number one, that would still be uh, terrorism, torture, sexual exploitation, uh, just with the power uh, balance that is in place. I mean, I, I mean, can you really say no? I think that's one of the points that uh, Renitia Tate uh, in her book, Pieces of a Puzzle, uh, where she's talking about sexual intercourse between white men. Uh, tragic arrangements, white men and uh, black females, where she says that a lot of black females, this is present day, she's not talking about stuff that happened way back in Abraham Lincoln days, present day that a lot of black females uh, do not feel that they have enough power to decline any sort of sexual offer uh, from a white man. Uh, and I would even submit that I suspect that is probably the case for a lot of black males as well, if they're approached by a white woman. But um, I, that that power dynamic is always there. This is not two equals coming down to make some sort of arrangement or a contract about what we're going to do. That's just white people again terrorizing and exploiting. Um, let's see. When this is uh, the next page over, uh, where he says, "When Ballard wrote Franklin asking for an infusion of cash to pay short-term debts." Franklin wrote back, it would be hard if two such old robbers as yourself and John Armfield could not sustain yourselves by Robert Franklin in a smooth hand at the entrepreneurial business of the frontier, including various legal and quasi-legal ways to take money from other people. I highlighted that. I think it's important because I think there, there are a lot of references in this portion uh, of the book uh, where white people are calling in, I guess, particularly uh, white slave traders uh, who are, are, are flesh peddlers, terrorists, torturers, referring to each other as uh, pirates, uh, referring to each other as uh, robbers, uh, where they know what the deal is. Uh, in my opinion, uh, well, we, we are even having a little bit of honesty uh, leaking through where you can try and uh, make it nice where, you know, you're skilled at, at being a businessman and, and all that. But at the end of the day, you know, you're a criminal. That's what you do. I understand that you're a criminal. You might be a smooth criminal, but you're a criminal nonetheless. Uh, but I, I highlighted it really more so 
when the narrator read this portion, and I might have to go back and listen to it again, but it came through very clearly to me. He said, uh, by robber, Franklin meant a smooth hand at the entrepreneurial business of the frontier, including the various legal and quasi-legal ways to make money from other people. Make with an M. In the text, it's take money from other people with a T. That has a very different connotation. Uh, If we're saying make money, that in in my view with an M, which is what he said, that's not what's in the text. In my view, uh, saying make money from other people gives it a little bit more of that professional veneer. It doesn't quite sound as criminal, like you're getting over on somebody, like you're, you know, some sort of, uh, I always say criminal, some sort of uh, person who is doing something dastardly uh, to take advantage of someone, to trick someone, uh, where you can pull, as they say, pull the wool over their eyes. I think that's in the code book uh, in terms of one that you should not use, a a phrase that you shouldn't use. Uh, But I thought that was important because in the text that I have, it says take from other people. Uh, So I just wanted to point that out to people that heard it. Uh, And if you remember that section specifically, if you you recall, that would be great. But I'll go back and and double check. But I do think he said uh, make not take money from other people. Um, let's see. Mm-hmm. The metaphors. I talk about that all the time when uh, anyone, white people, non-white people, when they're using metaphors to talk about racism, the alert uh, should be extremely high to really be paying attention. Uh, referring to other whites as one-eyed friend Uh, And this is a metaphor for a penis. Wow. Wellsing moment like off the charts. And uh, in my opinion, uh, it is really emphasizing, highlighting the central nature of rape to the enterprise of white supremacy. Uh, and I mean, that's exactly what this is talking about in this chapter. Like, yeah, I was uh, going out to see if I could get me uh, a negress that I can rape, probably a black child, uh, someone that's 10, 11, 12, 13 years old uh, that I can rape uh, on a long term basis. I can uh, buy her or him if it's male. Uh, I can buy this black person uh, and rape them. Just referring that it, this is this is such a common in, in my view, this is such a significant part of the ritual of white supremacy that the terms begin to reflect uh, the essential nature uh, of rape. That is fascinating. I had never heard this uh, phrase before, uh, this type of metaphor uh, in terms of whites kind of referencing each other and laughing. I think he also uh, said that this is kind of getting back to the pirate thing uh, as well, which is the same thing. Uh, You're just uh, a criminal. You're a terrorist. Uh, You're just going out uh, and literally stealing uh, people and torturing them, putting them in bondage uh, so you can trek them wherever you want to go and, and, and going to sell people. I mean, this is the worst uh, of the worst uh, in terms of inhumane and, and just out and out evil uh, behavior. Uh, and again, I, I I don't see that type of thing being represented when we have people like our guest on the program uh, yesterday, Dorothy Bullitt uh, and others when they talk about slavery, it just doesn't get presented uh, in these type of terms. But I found it fascinating. As I said, I'd never heard uh, that type of uh, I'd never heard that type of term before. Uh, I thought it was great uh, him emphasizing that the auction, the sale uh, of slaves uh, that for females particularly 
uh, sexuality, the attractiveness was heavily emphasized. Again, it's right front and center. Uh, hey, you can rape her. Hey, she's young. And you can you can make some children uh, out of this. Like you, after you do the rape, maybe you can impregnate uh, this black female and then you'll have even more money. Uh, th- this this book is kind of uh, for me, it's bleeding over into another book that I'm reading. It's a white author. He should be coming on the program uh, in about 10 days. Uh, the American Slave Coast uh, if folks want to do uh, any additional research. But basically the premise of the book uh, is that uh, slavery was a breeding industry uh that yes you do the cotton or the sugarcane or the rice or whatever other staple crops you're doing and you are breeding black people you're forcing uh black enslaved black males to rape other enslaved black females and you are going out white people you're going out and raping them too uh and uh, it is it is incredible uh where you are uh he uses the term collateralizing uh, where you are already putting a financial value on either children that are not yet born, uh, on children that are still in the womb, uh, or you know, black children that are two months old, three months old. For they already have a value. When you go around to appraise uh, a plantation, like oh, we've got you know a three-month nigger, uh, that's uh, that's about twenty dollars there. Uh, that's you know uh, six month Negro. Okay, that's uh, that's about sixty dollars there. Uh, and already looking at the appreciation in about ten years, be able to sell that little nigger for about uh, about four hundred dollars. Add that to my state. I mean, it is incredible uh, in terms of just linking uh, the finances to this act of rape and how that adds. Uh, to my white supremacist uh, empire. It'll be astounding to have him uh, on the program. And I say it's a lot of overlap. If you, anybody, if you really enjoyed this book, you felt you got some constructive information uh, aside from where the author might have practiced racism, white supremacy, you might want to check that book out. Now, that is written by uh, a white couple, white male and a white female, but it does have a lot of very interesting information and there's a ton of, of overlap uh, between these two texts. Anyway, um, also, uh, before I even miss the pirate aspect, uh, there are in or there were, I should say, uh, housing projects because they destroyed them. But in New Orleans, prior to Katrina, there were housing. There was a housing uh, project that was named uh, Lafitte. This was uh, an enslaving white terrorist. <laughs> and they named a housing project that was, you know, before they tore it down, uh, was predominantly for black people. Uh, just clowning on all levels uh, and again I I would submit that a lot of us not knowing that sort of information we just don't see how blatant how in your face uh, the white terrorism is and really just whites bragging uh, about terrorizing us terrorizing our family our ancestors from 100 years ago 200 years ago that they're doing this sort of thing all the time I laugh when they you know have these conversations that we're going to take down uh, a monument here or we're going to change the name of a school there I think firefighter in Florida has said all the time are you going to change the name uh, of Jacksonville are you going to take him off the 20 I mean how much are you going to change there's so many uh, monuments and placards and buildings uh, that are all in worship reverence of white terrorist but that uh, came out and in fact uh, the person that informed me of that is the author of that book the white man uh, Ned Sublett of the American Slave Coast who pointed that out that this housing project uh, Lafitte is, is named after an enslaving pirate um, moving forward 
this the portion where it talks about some of this uh, conflict uh, between white or even before I get to that, where they talked about William Lloyd Garrison and some of these, uh, in my view, suspected racists, uh, where a part of their quote unquote abolitionist work uh, was talking about the devastation of black families and all of this sexual terrorism. Uh, that goes on. I don't think white people care. I don't see much evidence that white people care now. Daniel Holtzclaw, I don't think that they cared then. Uh, just saying, oh man, this is terrible. All these, you know, black people are getting raped and all of that's, that's having to go on. That's, you know, that is that is pornography. Uh, it, Mr. Sublet in his book, he, he submits that that's how you end up with movies like Mandingo and Drum and some of these other uh, just, you know, blatantly, uh, it's like plantation pornography, basically, uh, that that's how you end up with that sort of thing. I suspect that's how some of that might have been regarded at the time. But I just don't think that white people really cared that much. If anything, you may have had some jealous uh, white women about their white husbands uh, sneaking off uh, to go and do some raping. Uh, but this is not any sort of humanitarian. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe we can't we can't allow uh, anyone to be treated that way. The system of white supremacy just does not allow uh, for black people to be thought of uh, as human beings, not to be thought of uh, as being on the same level equal to uh, a white person. That was the case then. That is the case now. Uh, I submit uh, getting back to what I was saying, uh, this uh, debate argument about uh, between white men and white women. Uh, they argue and fight, I think Ross said accurately, white people don't like uh, each other. It's certainly not disrupting their system of racism, white supremacy. These white women certainly were not on some feminism and sexism, like, oh my God, I'm going to represent for my black sis. That certainly was not happening, and they were still enjoying all of the goodies of the plantation life of white supremacy, and they're participating in this too. Uh, there are books uh, that talk about this, white women participating in the rape uh, of black males uh, during this period, probably black boys uh, as well, in addition to all the other uh, terrorism that's going on, if they're getting involved in some beating. I think you got some of that uh, in 12 Years a Slave that's been mentioned in this text uh, quite a few times. Uh, I, I just don't even get caught up in that when they try, and I don't, I don't take it as a, a uh, white women uh, being anything other than one racist being upset with how another racist is practicing white terrorism uh, and either being upset with how power is being allocated. You're doing some things that I would like to do or I'm just upset uh, that I'm not getting uh, enough attention. That's the way that I regard all of that. I thought it was fascinating. I guess the probably last thing I'll get in, then I'll check if other folks have things that they want to uh, make sure that they comment on. I thought it was fascinating how uh, this C, that's the chapter that we're in, uh, is, is so much focused on Area 8 sexual activity, and it segues really hard to economics and Andrew Jackson and his war uh, with the banks and saying that we want to equalize this, that you know we, we cannot have uh, this small little cadre of powerful whites where they're lording over uh, the rest of the white people that don't have as much money, don't have as much power. We need to equalize this so we can all be on the white team and you know participate you know on a somewhat more equal basis uh, in our pillaging and plundering uh, of black bodies. Uh, and I, I definitely think that that is important in terms of why Andrew Jackson uh, is worshipped. However, I thought it was fascinating in seeing how, okay, so we block the U.S. bank, uh, we take our funds, U.S. funds, we take those federal dollars out of those banks. White terrorists in Florida, Louisiana, 
other what they call southern states, they just go about the business of opening local banks and saying we will use our Negras uh, as collateral to get people to invest. We can open up our own banks and we'll just continue going about doing our business. No problem. <laughs> I mean, it is it is fascinating. It's one of the reasons the term uh, buck. Why I can I think uh, some people I think Roz and some other people said that they don't use it. I continue to use it because it is accurate. That is the system of racism, white supremacy, where we are uh, capital. We are cash for racists, white supremacists. That continues today. I think Scotty Reed, Thomas in New York, others uh, have pointed that out. Uh, if you want to look at the prison system, I would submit even if you look at the school system, and that that operates uh, not just within the confines uh, confines of greater confinement. Uh, but all throughout the system of racism, white supremacy, that is the way that we're looked at. Uh, if anything, not as human beings that have value, but as, oh, this nigga right here, I can make, you know, X amount of dollars or I can do this. I can do that when I'm not raping them or what have you. Bam, I can get, you know, this amount of money from them. I think some of you all even talked about after uh, after 9-11, I think it was either. Mr. Demery or S. Dot. I might be uh, confusing the listener, but they said after 9-11, it was people that said, man, you black people saved us. You know, nobody was shopping and everybody was all depressed. Man, black people came up. They came out here and spent all this money and they saved us. That's just my personal code. Other people don't have to apply that. But I mean, in my view, that is I have no problem uh, as long as the terms reflect truth about the dynamics of racism, white supremacy. I'm all on board with using terms that reflect that truth. Uh, when the system doesn't exist anymore, then I will discontinue using the term uh, buck. But I do still use it uh, in reference of money. I just don't call black people that. But that is the truth. And I thought they did a great job. I even thought that it it made sense in tying that together in terms of the banking system and just the astronomical amounts of money, uh, all of this drive and and raping and pillaging uh, and just producing astronomical profits worldwide, global system of racism. It's it just incredible uh, to get the mechanics of that and how uh, the economic system in this area of the world, because I personally, I have never seen uh, anyone really go into detail about how the economic system, uh, like really giving you explicit detail, going state by state, year by year. This is how it happened, naming specific white people and politicians and how all of this got worked out, that all of this is based on terrorizing black people and just the notion that, man, we can make so much money. We get more capital. I can buy more niggers. I can get more property, get more niggers, rape me some more folks produce some babies, more niggers, more money, more money. That means I can buy more land. We can just keep this rolling just to get all of the detail about how that worked, how that's the whole foundation uh, for the economics of this area of the world. Fascinating. Um, I'll hush there because I did see a hand. Uh, I was going to stop so they could uh, get their comment. And if you, uh, whoever the person was that had a hand up, if you wanted to uh, share, as I said, if there's any black females that had comment, they wanted to get in about that specific line about black females, uh, being able to leverage their sexuality to kind of negotiate a better situation for themselves on the plantation. If we could get that in before the second segment, that would be grand. Uh, but I'll stop there. Uh, if any, any of the other folks who had a hand up uh, wanted to comment, particularly anybody that we haven't heard from, if you had anything you wanted to get in before we get to the second audio clip, uh, you should do so now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
Yes, the other thing I thought about, too, um, with Andrew Jackson was there were about three different places where he spoke to the unification of white people, essentially that, uh, I guess, uh, more poor planters should have the same rights as the rich planters. And there was about three different sections in that last, um, that last segment we read in which he kept speaking to the unification of white men. And um, I think that's another reason that he's also uh, held in such high reverence, simply because he seemed, seemed to be speaking towards white people unifying under white supremacy and the terrorism of black people. But there always seemed to have been an internal struggle between those people with the power of, of money versus those with no, with no money. Um, and and that's, that was one thing I wanted to say. And also, actually, that, that thing you're talking about in reference to after 9-11, that was actually my wife. I, I, I was the one who talked about that. It was my wife who worked in the fashion industry. And, um, and after 9-11, basically, the company w- was about to falter. And it was solely because of black people going out and spending money on their products in major store chains that they made a ton of money when a lot of other companies were faltering in the fashion industry right after 9-11. So you're absolutely right about that. We are dollars in every way, shape, or form, in every one of the 10 areas of people activity. We are money. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for clearing that up. And and I definitely agree the first part of the statement as well about Andrew Jackson and that unification of white. That's been a major theme uh, throughout the book. I think we've almost mentioned that every single week. This is week eight, I think, that we've done this book. I think that's come up uh, every week that we've been on the text so far. Uh, anybody else have comments that they wanted to get in? Again, uh, the person that had a hand up, if you uh, uh, dial back in or what have you, I'll, I'll get your hand in before we get to the second audio clip. Anybody else? Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. If you could uh, speak up a tad, Mr. Demery Ford. Oh, okay. Um, okay uh, say something else. How is that now? Oh, okay. Much better. Okay. Yes. Uh, briefly, I'd just like to comment on Robert Potter's name, how they uh, Potterized, had entered into the uh, white Southern vocabulary as a term of castration, and the author, Mr. Baptist, used it in a sentence when he was talking about, uh, I guess, Andrew Jackson potterizing the the bank of the U.S., the B.U.S. I'll mute my line. Wow. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, I believe uh, Mr. Potter was the one from last week who castrated uh, to... Uh, white males that he thought were uh, having an affair uh, with his wife. I think that was one of the more uh, memorable sections uh, from the tech, one of North Carolina's finest. Um, yeah, the, and, and that too, I thought that was really important, um, that being brought up that it was not, for white people, it was not just about raping black females, uh, it was about raping even 
other people that they thought were less powerful than them, uh, that we are, even metaphorically, we're raping them too. I think Mr. Potter had said that he felt he had been raped because, you know, he, he suspected that his wife was stepping out on him or what have you, that they had uh, metaphorically emasculated him. And, and I would just tie all of that, in, in my view, I think that's white genetic annihilation right there and feeling genetically inferior. I think that's why you have all of these metaphors and references that tie back uh, to the genitals, uh, where you have white people who do not feel uh, secure, who do not who feel that they are genetically impotent uh, in, comparin- in comparison to melanin-dominant humans, uh, that you have to go around and do all of this compensating uh, with your genitals. We've had so many metaphors. I think it was Andrew Jackson uh, last week. It wasn't last week, the week before, uh, with the nullifiers in South Carolina where he was going to piss on them. It's all just everything is back to the genitals and I got to humiliate you with my genitals or I got to cut your genitals off or I got to rape you and, you know, dominate you with my genitals over and over and over and even referring to myself uh, by in a coded language, referring to myself, uh, comparing myself to the genitalia, one eyed. Uh, what is it, the one-eyed man or whatever they call it, one-eyed guy, whatever it was. But all these different metaphors that go back to that, I, all of that is, is exactly what Dr. Francis Cress Welsing is saying, uh, in my opinion. I, I could be wrong, but I think this is right in line with what she's saying in the ISIS papers. Uh, with that, unless somebody had something they wanted to get in like 30 seconds, we'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. Everybody satisfied? grand we'll hit uh second audio segment uh if you have any comments that you did not get in or if you uh were not able to get a hand up uh just you know jot a note down and we should have time after the second audio segment concludes so we're picking up uh right at the beginning chapter eight blood uh edward baptist the half has never been told context of white supremacy eight blood 1836 to 1844. Here was William Colbert's awakening. In the middle of the night, a gruff white man's shouts splintered his child's deep sleep. And then, on a lower register still, came his older brother January's voice in response. Some other antenna began to rattle. William was sensing that his parents were in distress. Whenever that happened, William always looked for his big brother Jan, tall and unbroken. And now, William was out of bed and accelerating out of the door of his parents' cabin toward the sound of January's voice. He stopped like a braked wheel. The full moon shone on January, tied to the pine tree that stood across the yard from the long row of shacks. The white man stood behind January with a bullwhip. A silent chorus of enslaved people watched from their porches. And the young man, caught on the way back from visiting a girl at the next labor camp, refused to cry. January clenched his teeth, trying to endure any amount of pain rather than confirm submission with tears. On slavery's frontier, however, the blood that ran usually showed a white man's potency, and it was running down January's chest and back. Not for him was the right to say enough, to act on his own desires rather than his master's. Each stroke was meant to force him to crawl, but still he held out, What's the matter with you, nigger? growled the white man. Don't it hurt? Maybe the slave owner's arm was getting tired, but after a decade in which millions of measured lashes had doubled cotton production, he knew that consummation was coming. 
William could remember his own agony at this moment. How, with head on knees, he had sat on my mammy's and pappy's step a-crying, sobbing with each choking grunt that came from his brother's clenched teeth. He could not articulate it, but William was coming to understand what the scene implied for him, and for the dreams he didn't even dream yet. The others had seen this script rehearsed a thousand times. Some of them couldn't stand it. They had to go inside their cabins. Like the fathers and brothers in the cabins, January could not be for long the man that he had imagined himself becoming as he had returned, elated, from his rendezvous with that girl. After a while, January couldn't stand it no more himself, and he say in a hoarse, long whisper, Massa, Massa have mercy on this poor nigger. Eighty years later, William cleared his throat, paused for a moment, and changed the subject. The dramas of white manhood inflicted havoc not only on black women's lives, but on African-American men as well. Those dramas cut and stained enslaved men specifically as men, systematically denying them the opportunity to assert traditionally masculine roles. Lewis Clark, an escapee from the whipping machine, once told northern white audiences that his most visceral experience in slavery was learning that a slave can't be a man. Like free men, enslaved men also felt that manhood required them to defend self and family and other victims from violence. When Samuel Ford bullied the men on Jacob Beeler's cotton camp, deep in the Louisiana woods, they tried to puncture his domineering overseer act. He told them he would whip them, and they swore not a negro on the place should be touched for it. They have gone so far as to shake sticks over my head and threaten my life, wrote Ford to Beeler, his boss. All along slavery's frontier, African-American men pushed back against assault and humiliation, the two master teeth of the whipping machine's gear. Washington, who was in the woods, come up this morning, wrote a Louisiana overseer. I undertook to whip him for his conduct, and he raised his hoe at me and swore I should not whip him. Such conduct as that I cannot stand on a place that I have to manage, Ford had concluded in the letter to his employer. Enslavers might not have understood everything about enslaved men, but Ford and his peers knew that allowing assertive behavior to stand would only lead to further boldness, both there and all along Bayou Buff. Leaving a threat unpunished also carved a wound in the enslaver's persona. Look at the letter written by enslaver Joseph Labrenti of Alabama. Rather than take $700 for Alfred, a runaway who had escaped recapture, I would rather go into the woods and maul rails for the next 12 months to pay the reward to have him shot. I wish to God that I could get within 40 yards of him with a double-barreled, and if I did not stop him, I am much mistaken. Labrenti was determined not to spend double his value to conquer Alfred, showing that sometimes the needs of domination could not be comprehended by economic calculation. But all in all, enslaved men had to make different calculations. Sure, they too told stories about Potteresque men of blood who resisted attempts to humiliate them, like the ones Wiley Childress heard about Fed from the older men. Fed proved to his enslaver that he wouldn't crawl or beg, even under the heaviest whipping. When Fed attempted to run away, some entrepreneurs captured him and figured out a new use for him. They made him their pet prize fighter. Now Fed could use violence without punishment. 
he killed a slave from the local ironworks in a match. But looming larger were the stories like the ones told by skulls on display. Martha Bradley remembered how she learned that neither she nor the men she knew could respond to the things white men did and survive. An enslaved man in her neighborhood shot an overseer. Although he taunted his pursuers as he fled, the white folks caught him a few hours later. They tied him up and burned him alive. Martha, then a little girl, and all the other people from local labor camps were marched past his blackened bones. You know if you was raised from birth like this, you could stand it, said another formerly enslaved man, Peter Korn. Yet another, Robert Falls, remembered that in his Mississippi childhood, we learned to say, yes, sir, and scrape and bow and to do exactly just what we was told to do. Make no difference if we wanted to or not. Whites subjected boys to incessant behavioral modification techniques, making them watch whippings, scaling up physical pain for even the smallest evidence of resistant behavior. Then, when as a man someone tried to run away, the first things that trackers did, once the dogs caught him, was to re-inoculate him against the disease of self-assertion. The hounds would bite you and worry you, remembered Henry Walden. But the overseer, running up, called out, If you hit one of them dogs, I'll blow your brains out. They would tell you to stand still and put your hands over your privates, Walden said. If I had my life to live over, I would die fighting rather than be a slave again, Robert Falls asserted, looking back across a whole century on earth. The white world, and perhaps the voices inside Falls's head, insisted that men who submitted were not men, men who deserved slavery. Then again, Anne Clark could look back, too, at the memory of her father, who always resisted whippings. When his Texas enslaver said it was time for him to take one, on the principle that no slave should remain unbeaten, Anne's father replied, You can't whip me. Anne remembered the white man's reply, for she was never the same when she heard it. But I can kill you. Anne, describing the incident, said, He shot my papa down. My mama took him in the cabin and put him on a pallet. He died. Thus, if one fought like a hero, as did one Mississippi runaway man whom a slave catcher cornered in a cave in 1848, they'd eventually bury another drained body in its chains. Or they could separate you from your blood another way. Robert Falls' own father, a famous fighter, had been on his way to the lead bullet exit from slavery until his enslaver threatened him with sale away from his family unless he stopped fighting back. Falls' father changed. Robert grew up with a father. And so, to save their son's blood, elders told young men slave stories like the one about the man who ran away to escape torture. The dogs bayed after him for days. Eventually, the slave catchers began to reel him in. Finally, jaws snapping at his heels, the young man burst out of the woods into a clearing where men were making bricks and ran straight into the blazing furnace. Run from hell and you might find yourself in even hotter pain. So, in the Mississippi night, after young Scott Bond heard such stories, he curled up in his single blanket and tried to sleep. He breathed slowly on his pallet. As the world quieted, he could hear, howling in the woods around him, the bloodhounds. And he thought about how he'd heard the white folks say that the music they made was the sweetest music in the world.
never did the music ring out louder than it did by the time of the 1836 harvest. Never had white people loved it more. If one could draw a graph that mapped the intensity of the losses that all enslaved men had to suffer, its curve peaked in the 1830s, along with the curves of booming slave prices and cotton revenue per slave. More migration, more speculation, more financial leverage for one-eyed men, all meant more defeats for enslaved men. There were more first lickens at the forks of the cotton picking, more old wives and new girlfriends taken away, more sons and daughters lost to the slave trade, more discoveries that being an axeman or coachman or wise man or preacher man or simply any man who was a slave was only dust blown off the paper that named one as a hand. If white men planted their seed in the boom years, black men lost their blood, their link to the past, their connection to the future. As March 3, 1837 turned into March 4, the day when Martin Van Buren would be inaugurated as the eighth president of the United States, Andrew Jackson sat quietly with a few friends in an upstairs room in the White House, celebrating eight years of gains. When the tall clock in the corner struck midnight, the president lit his corncob pipe and raised a glass of dark, thick, red Madeira wine. A recent flare-up of chronic digestive troubles, contracted in the 1814 campaign against the Creeks, had made him abstain for weeks. Tonight, Jackson threw caution to the wind. In two terms in office, Jackson had seen all his major goals fulfilled, and now a nation flooded by cotton and credit wallowed in economic high tide. On the crest of that boom, which enslavers and their political and financial allies themselves had engineered, rode triumphant the southwestern entrepreneurs in whose ranks Jackson was numbered. His administration's enforcement of the 1831 Indian Removal Act had driven 60,000 of the Cotton Frontier's original inhabitants across the Mississippi, opening 25 million acres, an area the size of Kentucky, for speculation and cotton production. His political allies had learned to steer the angry, potterizing resentments of overseers, small farmers, and public land squatters into the channels of a new institutional party system. And that, in turn, helped Southwestern entrepreneurs to convert rank-and-file Jacksonian voters' demands for an assault on entrenched bank elites into a paradoxical flood of lending to enslavers and cotton speculators, this time pumped through innovative banks that the entrepreneurs themselves controlled. The banks and their borrowers socialized all the risks on distant investors, the general white Southern public, and, above all, enslaved people. The result was unprecedented growth. Even factoring in 1833's Biddle-engineered recession, the economy expanded at an unprecedented rate, 6.6% per year between 1830 and 1837. Jackson still believed that gold and silver were the only real money and that banks were all scams. But if his precious metal fetishism prevented him from admitting the role of pet banks in fueling rapid expansion, he did not object to taking credit for national prosperity. And just that morning, he had told representatives from the Republic of Texas that the United States was officially recognizing their independence. Observers believed this was the first step in uniting the fledgling slave owner's nation to the much larger one to its east. So even wider fields beckoned, ripe for planting with the seeds of creative destruction. But actions have repercussions, and often not the ones for which the actors hope. 
Over the decade or so that followed 1836, enslavers' overreach produced literal and figurative blood, pivoting the antebellum history of the United States in unexpected directions. Seventeen years earlier, Connecticut-born Moses Austin had ridden from Missouri to San Antonio, which was then one of the easternmost towns in Mexico. Moses died not long afterward, but his son Stephen carried on the Austin scheme of helping Americans emigrate to the vast spaces west of Louisiana. Stephen recruited many Southerners, some of whom brought slaves with them. Mexico had made emancipation its national policy, but Texas was many miles from Mexico City. Enslavers also connived to import several boatloads of Africans bought in Havana Harbor. Atlantic slave traders brought more than 200,000 Africans to Cuba in the 1830s. By the end of 1835, almost 5,000 enslaved Africans and African Americans lived in Texas, making up 13% of the non-Indian population. After a half-hearted 1829 attempt to enforce its emancipation laws in Texas, the central government in Mexico signaled in 1835 that this time it was serious about ending slavery. Texas enslavers began to arm themselves, and in October, shooting broke out between American settlers and Mexican soldiers. In March 1836, a convention gathered at the town of Washington and declared Texas an independent republic. Although Texas rebels announced they were fighting for liberty in opposition to slavery, it was Southerners who financed and staffed the quest for independence. Rebel commissioners had already raised $300,000 from New Orleans entrepreneurs, and once independence was declared, merchants advanced war supplies in exchange for freshly printed Texas bonds. Rebels also profited from the services of casualties from earlier waves of expansion. For instance, reeling from a divorce that ended his Tennessee political career, Sam Houston turned up in late 1835 and assumed command of the Republic's fledgling army. Robert Potter also materialized at the Washington Convention and proved to be one of the most aggressive proponents of Texas independence. He can only float in troubled waters, wrote one observer at the convention. After troops under Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana slaughtered the entire garrison of a fort called the Alamo, save five enslaved men and the women and children, every rumor about other alleged atrocities found an eager U.S. audience. One rumor claimed that Mexican troops had captured the son of Ohio Governor William Henry Harrison, castrated him, and then raped him to death with a spear. Each atrocity story brought angry new volunteers across the border to join the rebel army. In April 1836, Houston's forces routed Santa Ana's army at San Jacinto. Southern whites were overjoyed. Everyone is speaking of emigration to the far west, either Mississippi or Texas wrote John Lockheed from Southside, Virginia's moribund tobacco lands. I should prefer Texas, as I feel that there is greater field for enterprise than in any other country at present. All who go there certainly run the risk of stopping a bullet, but if they escape, they are handsomely paid for that danger. Investors in the Texas cause now expected profit from the doors their ground-floor investment would open. You must not be surprised to see me among you in a few months, wrote one to a Texas contact. I shall soon have a large cotton farm, perhaps several of them underway in Texas. With the war's end, entrepreneurs of the domestic slave trade jockey to send the tide of immigration flowing rapidly to Texas, as a North Carolina enslaver put it. 
In the next five years, the number of slaves in Texas would grow from 5,000 to about 13,000. All Texas needed, enthused Virginia migrant James Cock, was a bank to print up money and lend it to slave buyers. Credit would convert floating speculators into well-settled planters who could extract $1,000 in cotton per hand in a year. The bank could sell bonds on European financial markets using the CAPL model of funding credit and a currency with slave revenue securitization. The Texas Revolution also galvanized whites who had heard a different sort of news. Benjamin Lundy, William Lloyd Garrison, and others had awakened to the power of the ever-growing whipping machine. They had awakened to still others. Quietly, almost muted in the background by a national press devoted to the constant drumbeat of political debate over issues such as nullification, tariffs, the bank war, and the formation of new political parties, a small but dedicated group of black and white abolitionists had built up local associations across the North. Beginning in 1835, many of these abolition societies, composed in many cases primarily of churchly white women who saw slavery as an affront to morality, sent petitions to Congress asking representatives to ban slavery in the federally administered District of Columbia. Such congressmen reacted with fury, insisting that the petitions could not be read into the public record. But that reaction itself helped the petitions gain a stubborn and canny legislative champion. John Quincy Adams, former president, was now the representative from his home district in Massachusetts, and he saw a chance to get revenge for critiques he'd suffered at the hands of Southerners during his presidency. Adams argued that the right of citizens to petition their legislature went back to England's Magna Carta, and that the petitions should be read into the congressional record. The Southerners, with many Northern representatives concurring, responded by passing a gag rule that automatically tabled any petition referring to slavery. Yet Adams had a bag of parliamentary tricks that allowed him to keep forcing the petition issue into discussion in the House. And the petitions kept coming. By 1836, many echoed a claim that Benjamin Lundy was making in print, that the slaveholders of this country, with land speculators and slave traders, instigated the Texas Revolution to open a vast and profitable slave market therein, and ultimately to annex it to the United States. Adams told his constituents that whether they cared about slavery or not, the weight of this massive new slave territory would render New England forever politically irrelevant. And the Southern congressmen were making it easy for him to claim that the slaveholders, with their zeal for hushing criticism of slavery, were sacrificing the basic political rights of other white Americans by stifling their rights of petition and free speech. The uproar over the petitions convinced Andrew Jackson to back away from immediate annexation. Still, by March 1837, the fear that Britain might make Texas its client state had enabled the president to manipulate Congress into recognizing the new republic as an independent country, separate from Mexico. So, as Jackson sipped Madeira, almost eight years after his first raucous evening at the White House, he confidently expected that Texas would soon become one or several states. Perhaps the outgoing president was less sanguine about other recent developments. He was certainly eager to deny complicity in the flood of credit sloshing through the nation's economy. But one of the main reasons why the supply of money in circulation rose by 50% between 1834 and 1836 was that he had freed the banks from scrutiny by his veto of the Monster Bank. 
Now, wrote Burrell Fox from a new Mississippi town, everything is at its high water. There was five droves of Negroes sold this fall, fellows at $1,200 to $1,400 and up. Times appear to be brisk for everything that can come to market. Even apples is selling at Vicksburg for $5 a barrel. A North Carolina migrant reported that his relatives along the Tom Bigbee in northeastern Mississippi were all deranged on the subject of real estate. Even in the dormitories of the University of Alabama, reported a student, there was more talk of speculation than anything else. Everybody is awake to the land speculation. Money is plenty. Of course, if everyone was awake, it was hard to see how one could continue to buy low and sell high. By 1836, the Alabama and Mississippi relatives of Pendleton County, South Carolina enslaver Thomas Harrison had been pressing him to move his investments west for years. Pendleton is a very happy and pleasant country, they wrote, but for all of its pleasures and comforts, it was just the place to miss the chance. Surely it must be very unprofitable to have money vested in land and Negroes there. Hurry out, they told him, before the speculators and capitalists buy all the good cotton land. But Harrison feared that credit on slavery's frontier was now coming too easy, that the immense floods of paper money with which the country is inundated if not checked will give a fictitious value to property beyond anything ever known. In fact, he noted, irrational increases in asset prices were already evident. He sent a group of his enslaved people out to Alabama so that a son located there could sell them off at the current high prices. On the way back from a visit, Thomas Harrison traveled through Kentucky, where people there assured him that the price of their land would never fall again. Harrison wrote, But this I do not believe, that the whole real property of a state so long settled should increase permanently in value 500% in five years is impossible. Like a North Carolinian who warned his migrating son not to let the wild, extravagant, speculating notions of these Southern people lead you astray, for a reaction must take place, Harrison feared a calamity would soon involve thousands in ruin. The term bubble gets used to describe a situation in which an important asset has become wildly overvalued compared to realistic predictions of future returns. From 1800 onward, the price of slaves, the most important asset in the Southern economy, had always tracked that of cotton, or more specifically, the rate of individual productivity times the price of a pound of cotton. In 1834, however, slave prices detached themselves from that of cotton and soared upward on a new trajectory. By the time Louisiana's Jacob Beeler bought dozens of slaves on credit from Isaac Franklin and Rice Ballard in 1836, for instance, he paid over $1,500 each for the young men, more than twice the 1830 price, even though cotton prices had declined from a late 1834 peak to 1830 levels. For decades before the financial crisis of 2008, most economists dogmatically insisted that the behavior of the market and its actors was inevitably rational. Yet a few brave souls insisted that the history of bubbles, booms, and crashes showed a clear historical record of mass irrational economic behavior. Throughout history, in fact, when three conditions occur at the same time, an asset bubble, irrationally high prices for some category of asset, usually emerges. Thomas Harrison was observing all three. The first such condition is the elimination of market regulation. 
By 1836, Jackson's administration had destroyed the BUS and replaced it with nothing. Nor did states try to control how much money banks printed and lent. Meanwhile, the National Whig Party, once the champion of the BUS, now tried to eliminate regulation altogether by passing the Deposit Act of 1836. This act shifted public land revenues from Western banks to Eastern ones, allowing the latter to increase their lending. The Whigs also doubled the number of pet banks. Lending by U.S. banks had also increased dramatically since 1833 because of the second cause of bubbles, financial innovations that make it easier to expand the leverage of borrowers. CAPL-style bonds provided distant investors with opportunity to purchase shares in the income flows of thousands of slaves, to speculate, in effect, on future revenues generated by cotton and slaves. These securities drew cash into the southwestern region, inflating the value of all kinds of assets, especially enslaved hands. But one more factor makes a bubble run wild, and that is the euphoric belief that the rules of economics have changed, that somehow this time is different and asset prices will not return to their mean. We can see nothing in the prospects of the country to make it likely that positive forecasts will be disappointed, wrote merchants Byrne, Hammond, and Company in March 1836. The whole southern and western country is in a most prosperous state, and its products annually extending in a most extraordinary manner. Southwestern entrepreneurs, particularly prone to aggressive, risk-taking behavior, suffered an especially bad case of the strain of this-time-is-different thinking, called disaster myopia, meaning that they underestimated both the likelihood and the probable magnitude of financial corrections. Thus, a white migrant who wrote that the 1836 price of $1,500 for ordinary field hands was extravagant, assumed in the next breath that prices would rise further, and he hoped to take advantage. Cuff, for instance, would command 1600 Although, Negroes are all out of character high, wrote Henry Draft in 1835, I see no prospect of their falling. I fully believe Negroes will be higher. He believed it, for he needed to believe it. I don't want them to fall at present, for I have ten on hand, whom he hoped to resell for a profit. Everybody is in debt neck over ears, wrote one young Alabama planter to his Connecticut father. The house of cards built by what Thomas Harrison called the wild speculating notions of these southern people could collapse, and then those who are making large contracts with all their show of wealth must come down. Yet in late summer 1836, the editor of the commerce-dedicated newspaper New Orleans Price Current told his readers not to worry. True, there was a lot of debt hanging over Louisiana entrepreneurs and their banks. Bank loans, dry goods sold on credit to the upper country more than usual, major infrastructure projects in and around New Orleans, gas lighting networks, railroads, levees, canals, steam-powered cotton presses, and lands entered in the upper country and Negroes purchased to be paid out of the ensuing crop of cotton, for which the money had already been drawn from New Orleans. That all added up to $23 million, leveraged on the steel yard beam against the anticipated revenue to be generated from what hands were at that very moment picking in the fields. For all of this deficit, insisted the price current, will soon be covered by the receipt of cotton, sugar, and the various products of the western states, which we may assume with great safety will amount to at least 60 millions of dollars.
Thus, even though a slave trader wrote from Alabama in December that business seems dull, he added that traders are not discouraged. Cotton was at 16 cents a pound, but it will bear 25 cents before the crop is in. There was much more cotton in 1836 than there had been in 1828. Over eight years of seed time, the U.S. government, the states, banks, private citizens, and foreign entities had collectively invested about $400 million, or one-third of the value of all U.S. economic activity in 1830, into expanding production on slavery's frontier. This includes the price of 250,000 slaves moved, 48 million new acres of public land sold, the costs of Indian removals and wars, and the massive expansion of the southwestern financial infrastructure. The number of hands on cotton plantations expanded dramatically, and the need to repay loans only accelerated the whipping machine, collectively forcing the total picking that hands could accomplish just a little higher each day. In 1830, the United States made 732,000 bales. As the harvest kicked into high gear in the fall of 1836, men who made a living by gambling on cotton were predicting a deluge of 1.5 million bales, each one a 400-pound, snowy, semi-cube wrapped in canvas. This was 600 million pounds of clean cotton, or expressed in a different way, more than 6 million person days of picking under the hot sun. That will do it for this week. Uh, we will pick up next week. I guess people should start thinking of uh, the next book. I, for whatever reason, I, I looked at this book originally, and I was like, wow, this is kind of a, a chunky book. We'll probably be on this for a long time, but um, it's looking like that is not the case. Uh, we are on the home stretch. I do not see this book taking more than three, four additional uh, sessions, and we will be all done. I think we did about... 70 or so pages uh, of reading uh, this week and if we kind of keep that pace up uh, we should not we should not have more than about three four sessions five seems uh, like kind of a stretch uh, to me at any rate uh, context of white supremacy the half has never been told uh, if folks have uh, commentary that they would like to share feel free to chime in the number to dial is six four one. Seven one five three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, we should have about 30 minutes uh, for folks to get any comments in. Uh, if you didn't share during the first uh, segment and you have something you want to make sure you get in, you should get your hand up right now. Please do not wait until the last minute. Uh, everybody who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, firefighter in Florida, uh, Roz, Mr. Demi Four, your lines should all be open. Uh, if I see other hands, I will nab them as well. Uh, feel free. And Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, this section was uh, pretty interesting. Um, in the very beginning of the chapter, probably on, yeah, on the second page, page 262, um, I found it very interesting where uh, they had this, the, guy, the brother, uh, Lewis Clark, an escape, it says that Lewis Clark, an escapee from the whipping machine, once told Northern white audiences, 
that his most visceral experience in slavery was learning that a man, that a slave cannot, that, that excuse me, that a slave can't be a man. And I find that interesting because that speaks directly to what Neely Fuller Jr. speaks about as far as uh, black people, uh, male, female, are not adults, but children. And the fact that um, this, this whole system was designed to basically dehumanize us to the point where we, we've lost every bit of any and everything that we were prior to encountering white people. And that entire, um, that entire paragraph, uh, because later on they, they, they actually speak about different black people who show black self-respect by basically threatening their white captors. And it just really speaks to the fact that, um, that what Dr. Wilson has talked about her entire life, um, God, God bless her soul, um, about black self-respect really being the answer to white supremacy is just our ability to, to, to rise to the occasion and be courageous, even in those moments where we're most fearful to fight through those moments of fear, to get to the next place, which is basically not no longer tolerating, <clears throat> excuse me, white people's terrorism. Um, and I thought that was a very powerful, uh, paragraph there. Um, also the section on the following page, I found fascinating. It says on page 263, when Fed attempted to run away, some entrepreneurs captured him and figured out a new use for him. They made him their pet prize fighter. Now Fed could use violence without punishment. And he even killed a slave from a local ironworks in a match. And it just made me think that, you know, white people are so just incredibly cunning and just forward thinking in their evil machinations that, um, you know, obviously he must have presented a formidable foe for them. And they actually had to think of an invent a new way to utilize his uh, skills. So they just made him their pet, which he was prior to, but now he was a pet prize fighter. And it reminded me of the whole concept of dog fighting, which we also learned from white people. Um, you know, they basically took him around and had him fight other black people. And in some cases, obviously he killed at least one, um, who's to say he hadn't killed any others that the uh, author didn't mention in the book. So it just really speaks to the fact that just about, you know, almost everything that, that black people have gotten into, whether it's sports, boxing, you know, you name it, <laughs> like they literally have white supremacized everything, all 10 areas of people activity, global system. Um, also, Oh, I found this this section fascinating too. This was on on page two sixty four. It says, uh, "Then, oh, it says, then when as a when as a man, someone tried to run away. The first thing the tracker did once the dogs caught him was to re-inoculate him against the disease the disease of self assertion, which I would say black self respect. The hounds would bite you and worry you," remembered Henry Walden. But the overseer running up called out, if you hit one of them dogs, I'll blow your brains out. They would tell you to stand still and put your hands over your privates, Walden said. And it made me think of um, something else Dr. Wilson talked about. Jeez, um, Romulus, the story of Romulus and Remus. And um, just the fact that if you study Roman history, Romulus and Remus were the two founding male children of Roman society that was suckled by a dog. And it just takes me back because I've been listening to all of her episodes in succession. And I think they're some of the most important episodes you've ever um, put together, Gus. And um, just that whole idea of how important, how much a dog means to them than other human beings. And it really speaks to the fact that when they lived in caves, 
you know, all the things that, you know, Elijah Muhammad and all the other people who talked about them, you know, sleeping with dogs and all of that, they put that in their mythology, but I truly do not believe it's mythological. Um, again, going back to cynical African site, he, he has quite a bit of information about white people sleeping with dogs and even wanting to marry dogs. So that section really stood out to me and spoke volumes as far as the um, things that Dr. Wilson spoke about in reference to white people's uh, reverence for the dog and calling them uh, man's best friend. Um, the following paragraph uh on that same page, uh, he said, the, the brother says, if I had to live my life over, I would die fighting rather than be a slave again. Robert Falls asserted, looking back across a whole century on earth, the white world perhaps, and perhaps the voices inside Falls' head insisted that men who submitted were not men, men who deserved slavery. Then again, Ann Clark, who could look back too at the memory of her father who always resisted whippings when his Texas enslaver said it was time for him to take one, on the principle that no slave should remain unbeaten, Anne's father replied, "You can't whip me." And remembered the white man's reply, for she never, excuse me, for she was never the same once she heard it. But I can kill you. And describing the incident, said, "He shot my papa down. My mama took him in the cabin, put him on a pallet, and he died. Thus, one fought like a hero, as one." as did one Mississippi runaway man whom a slave catcher cornered in a cave in 1848. They'd eventually bury another drained body in his chains, or they would separate. They could separate you from your blood another way. Robert Fall's own father, a famous fighter had been on his way to the lead bullet exit from slavery until his enslaver threatened him with sale away from his family, unless he stopped fighting back. And this really speaks to the, again, what Dr. Wilson talked about that courage and the fact that when you're going through, this sort of brutality on such a consistent and overt, overt basis, um, really death is better than white supremacy. Like when you get to that point, um, it goes to what Neely Fuller Jr. talks about, maximum compensatory justice. When you're in that moment where it's just, I can't take it anymore. It's time for me to just handle my business. And, you know, if I have to off myself so that these white pe people don't get their hands on me, then that's fine because anything's better than dealing with racism, white supremacy. And um, I just found that um, that whole section um, speaking about black self-respect and our yearning for black self-respect, I think reading this book kind of bring, brings home for me the, the understanding that that's what we have been seeking the whole time. And it was Dr. Wilson who identified that, that it's our self-respect. That's what they've chipped away at once they destroyed the black family. And it's something that we really have to work towards uh, finding and keeping it like the gem that it is and cultivating it so that our descendants can have a better life than we can, than we have. Um, thank you, and I'll meet my line there. Uh, let's see, the caller at 3372, I don't think we've heard from you. Uh, if you had comments, did you want to share? 3372? Hello, may I be heard? Uh, yes, ma'am. If you could speak up a little bit, that would be helpful. Yes. Um, caller from the 712. Um, the book is um it's quite disturbing to me i mean i know i i know all this all these things happened and probably much more uh much more worse things um that they that the writer is not even talking about and probably is not aware of but it is very disturbing but it is it's important to read um it's important to listen to with the um numbers that they keep giving us uh, well, the writer keeps giving us these large amount of numbers, um, 12, I don't know, I think he said like 12 million slaves or something like that. And in another reading, 
it was um, 17,000 and just these large numbers. And um, thinking about uh, what Dr. Wilson said with the one-tenth um, the planet's population, I just don't think that there are that many white people, e- even in even in the United States. Um, I mean, it's just how could it be if I'm if I'm a dirtbag scumbag slave master and I got my dirtbag scumbag slave mistress wife, and even I might have three to five kids, but I have fifty. Um, 50 African enslaved African people working for me. How how are they? How are their numbers so high? That that's what I'm getting from this book. They keep throwing out these large amount of numbers, and it's like, how many people are really in the United States? As far as white people, I mean, how many white people are there really? And I, I'm just I was just thinking about that. I'm going over this book reading. I am. I'm. I'm quite happy that we're reading this book. Um, we need this information, um, but again, it's very disturbing to me, and I'm having, I'm having a, a hard time listening to it. But I, I am listening to it, and that was my comment. It's just the numbers. How many white people are there really in the United States? And that was my comment. Uh, let's see, Thomas in New York uh, is going to get your call. I was going to say also, I think uh, they should have census records. White people generally, they tend to be pretty good about having uh, at least where you can kind of get an idea uh, in terms of the number of whites that were in this area of the world. This is like 19th century, uh, but that should be uh, available online uh, to kind of get a get a rough estimate. I can kind of check that and see if we can bring that next week as well. Uh, Thomas in New York, were you going to share? Yes, good evening to all. Good evening, Gus. Um, to the lady's question, I know that it's about 300, a little bit over 300 million people in the United States today. And I believe 200 million of those are white and um, 40 million are black and the rest are other. So um, I don't know if that adds anything. But in the 19th century, they had a huge influx of white people coming in uh, from Italy and Poland and um, um, the Jews, just a whole bunch of people coming over. Um, what I like to say about the book is, um, you know, you said earlier in the earlier section, Gus, uh, that black people were, um, you know, currency pretty much. They were, they were, you know, the buck. Um, and I agree with you. Um, but as you as this book has gone on, you know, from the very early sections to the this current section, they've been reduced to just being debt, you know, no real value, no real worth. And I think that um definitely played in how they've started the the more mistreatment. Um um I think um Roz already hit on this. I have wrote this down. Black men couldn't be men. They weren't allowed to and um I thought of Nelly Fuller as well. Um, you know, I mean, as if the inability to protect your family, your mother, your wife, your children weren't enough, you know, they weren't allowed to assume the traditional male roles and, um, they still work very hard at doing that today. Um, the runaway slave turned prize fighter kind of reminded me of, um, you know, Candy's Plantation, Django Unchained, um, 
you know, the, uh, the blacks were fighting back, resisting their overseers, and um, what they did was they used a little bit of psychological warfare, using fairy tales about former slaves, you know, probably enhancing the stories to scare those slaves they have, you know, this is what's going to happen, you know, or threatening them by telling their family away, you know, threatening them by saying, I'll take you away from your, your kids or your mother or your wife, so those seem to be effective. Um, the rebel army, you know, they said they raped a man to death with a spear. And the secession and funded the war, I guess that ensued with the Mexicans, um, all in the name of slavery, the fear of the end of slavery. And um, I just wanted to say, you know, Chris Cow is definitely a Texas native. Uh, he's following tradition. Um, and last thing I wanted to add, um, one thing I must say is that these white people had big ideas. You know, they think big. You know, they thought massive expansion. You know, they already were calculating how many slaves they needed to get up the type of barrels of cotton. And even though it was kind of, um, you know, not not the type of research that they put into things today, it just shows that they've always thought big at the expense of us. And I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call. For sure. Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, retired firefighter, did either of you have comments you wanted to get in? Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. On page 261, around the middle, it says, On Slavery's Frontier, However, blood that ran usually showed the white man's potency. I thought that was uh, noteworthy how they were um, comparing their potency uh, with the letting bloodletting of uh, black slaves, and also uh, Mr. William. COVID um, on the next page, suffering from post-traumatic stress after watching his brother fed, whipped until he cried out. And then the white enslavers using him to exact violence on other slaves after that as a so-called prize fighter. And I think that, you know, the built-in rage, you know, probably was released, you know, and he even killed one uh, slave. And also on page 267 that uh, I think Thomas from New York uh, alluded to the rumor of the son of William Harrison being castrated and raped with a spear. I think that that's what that was, a rumor, because white people are very good at lying, and they were using this lie to recruit people to uh, help in the eradication or, you know, help run the uh, Mexicans out of of, uh, what was later. Uh, considered Texas. So I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking me. Right on. Retired firefighter, do you have anything you want to add? 
Uh, just to, what comes to my mind is uh, basically uh, more of the same of what I've said before of what would be the procedure uh, once the system of racism, white supremacy is neutralized. Okay, what are we going to do with white people uh, on the earth? Uh, in order to, uh, in this newly created behavior amongst peoples on, in, the, in the world on, on how to maintain that, that, uh, that uh, utopia, uh, so to speak, uh, what are we to do with these people? Uh, because the only thing I see from fact in what we're reading and today, the only thing, the only difference I see uh, is refinement. Uh, unless somebody could tell me something different, uh, 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 most a lot of a, a lot of uh, unfortunately non-white people uh, would answer me by saying, uh, "Well, there have been some improvements made, but uh, that is not." a correct projection of how to deal with uh, something that is called racism, white supremacy. Uh, it's like, it's like saying, uh, you're kind of dead, either dead or alive. <laughs> so either the system of racism, white supremacy is effectively neutralized and, re and, uh, or, or not. And then it has to be replaced by something. Uh, which would be uh, our responsibility, our meaning people who are classified by white people as not being white. That would be our responsibility to uh, institute that uh, replacement. And I, I agree with Mr. Fuller by by stating a uh, system of justice. Uh, so those are just my thoughts as, as far as they're concerned. It's an interesting read. Uh, basically, with me, what it does, it, it, it reinforces things that I prior to already had an understanding of. It just gives me more more uh, ammunition in my, in my head to be able to, uh, with non-white people, to, as courteous as possible, explain that process of what happened to us and how and why we still uh, uh, react in the, in the negative behaviors we have. A lot of it has to do with what we're reading right now uh, because the, the poison is still in us and to be able to, to the white people, to confront them in the most scientific, articulate form in the memory of Dr. Francis Chris Wellesley. And uh, that's, so that's, that's what I have to say about the second half. Thank you. Ah, uh, Shay. Uh, see how quickly I can uh, get my comments in. Um, reminded of uh, nothing but a man hearing all this talk about, you know, uh, black manhood or the uh, lack thereof. Uh, the portion where it started off at um, just chilling. And, and again, I think this has been touched on. I think whites enjoy this type of reading. Uh, I'd be willing to wager a hefty sum that 
uh, the majority of the reading audience for this text is whites, and I think they enjoy this sort of uh, literature. Uh, it's almost uh, a thrill for the, the same type of thrill that you hear when described January being beaten uh, and and seeing that this black male's blood run that it was it showed the white man's potency. I think that they get the same uh, type of enjoyment in reading about what their racist ancestors uh, did to us. Uh, if you remember Dorothy Bullitt yesterday, I thought the next down uh, the sentence where it said uh, the next paragraph down it said maybe the slave owner's arm was getting tired, but after a decade in which millions of measured lashes had been had doubled cotton production, he knew that consummation was coming. I just the term consummation is a sexual uh, term. You consummate a marriage by having sexual intercourse. Uh, again, that relationship, I've said this for years, uh, practicing uh, racism, white supremacy. Uh, it is a sexual fetish uh, for whites. Uh, you just see that over and over and over and over again uh, throughout this book, the way that it's uh, presented. Um, great photos in, in this section as well. Um, where it says, but all in all, enslaved men have to make different calculations. Sure, they did. Sure, they too told stories about potteresque men of blood who resisted attempts to humiliate them, like ones, like the ones wily Childress heard about fed from older men. Uh, that term potteresque, I think uh, Mr. Dermifor brought that up before, uh, where uh, we get all these uh, new uh, jingoisms, new terms. Uh, made in reference to this white man who castrated uh, two other people. Uh, it is just, it is fascinating uh, to me how, how this guy, this character uh, is, is continuing. He has ended up becoming a really important person uh, as we move throughout the text. Um, let's see. I think you all already touched on uh, the behavior modification and making sure that uh, black people are punished uh, so that they do not resist so that they will comply with the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think Ra's uh, excellent comparison that self-assertion is black self-respect where whites refer to that as a disease, the disease of self-assertion, the disease uh, of black self-respect even uh, reminding me of uh, Samuel Cartwright, his term uh, draptomania where black people had the audacity to say I don't like this plantation thing I'm going to run away that that is some sort of mental illness uh, in the mind uh, of racist man racist woman uh, yeah I thought it was, it was fascinating as well where uh, later down in the on the same page where it said uh, this Texas uh, racist said that it just it's not possible for you to be a slave and to not be beaten so I'm going to beat you not that you did something uh, incorrect, not that there was an infraction per se, but just, you know, you're a slave. You haven't been beaten, so we got to make sure we cross that off uh, my list. Uh, I think you all already touched on, on some of the other important elements around that as well. Man, the section where they said uh, this was a Scott Bond had heard stories about uh, black people running away uh, and how part of the uh, behavior modification was even fellow enslaved black people telling stories to their children, really, I would suspect in a way, trying to, to protect them as best they could in a weak position uh, about black people running it. Remind all of the conversation we've been hearing over the past decades, really, uh, about, you know, encounters with police and that sort of thing. And man, they, they can do this to you. They can do that to you in the hopes of maybe uh, getting your child to behave, to realize we're in such a, a dangerous terroristic environment. Uh, but where he says uh, that he went to sleep and he heard dogs 
barking. Uh, and these dogs were, you know, he was associating it with chasing uh, black people that were trying to run away from the plantation. And he said he thought about how he'd heard the white folks say that, say that the music they made was the sweetest music in the world, uh, referencing these dogs chasing after black people and then black people being in pain uh, or suffering. And it continues, never did the music ring out louder than it did in the time of the 1836 harvest. Never had white people loved it more. If one could draw a graph that mapped the intensity of the losses that all enslaved men had to suffer, its curve peaked in in the 1830s along with the curve's of booming slave prices and cotton revenue per slave. That is an astounding uh, section of writing, in my view, uh, where you get a metaphor. Again, it is music. It is enjoyment. Black suffering is the sweetest music in the world. I just don't think that we think of whites in that manner. And again, that's why I submit books like this. They love this, hearing how our family suffered and was raped and tortured under this system and uh, continuing on through uh, today's sort of plantation fiction, I think is the term I've used before to describe all this plantation literature. Uh, Moving forward about Texas, hugely important. Uh, Again, just understanding history. I know there are black people who listen to this program here in Texas, knowing that that's how this uh, this quote-unquote state uh, became a part of the Union in defense of slavery. We've got to have our Negroes. Can't have these Mexicans coming in here and telling us that we can't have our Negroes. We'll go to war and, you know, blow up this whole planet uh, to keep our Negroes. Uh, and we get the sex thing again. Uh, and I looked at the uh, footnote where they were talking about these uh, rumors that, you know, some whites were uh, castrated or raped with a spear and, and somehow their genitals were violated, they were emasculated, their white manhood was taken from them, and they one of the footnotes said that this was a lie, that one of the reported uh, victims uh, whose genitals had been taken or he had been raped or what have you, that he was fine, he came back and his genitals were intact. That they just, And I mean, you see this through and through. I think Dorothy Bullitt yesterday on the program, a white woman saying that she was uh, sexually molested uh, by all these black savages while she was in uh, great or junior high here in Seattle, Washington, uh, that they are the best in the business. That just seems to be an essential part of white culture to make up uh, these lies that they have been victimized, particularly sexually victimized uh, by black people. And that is just uh, a reason, justification uh, to go out and attack and brutalize more non-white people. They, that, that is a staple aspect uh, of white supremacy culture. Um, the portion where it talked about John Quincy Adams, where they were making uh, these calls where they wanted to get it read in Congress, their objections to slavery. Not that these are friends of black people, but I thought specifically with John Quincy Adams, not that he loved black people. He was aggrieved with his treatment by white Southerners and saying, well, oh, this is a way I can stick it to them. Uh, not that I'm in love with black people, but I know that, you know, hey, I, I know some tricks or two that I can see if I can get some of this stuff uh, read in Congress uh, to kind of agitate them that's poking at slavery and saying, oh, this is maybe not, maybe we shouldn't conduct our business in this way. Maybe we should kind of do away with this particular form uh, of enslavement domination uh, of black people. I thought that was important because sometimes we get fooled into thinking that somebody doing this, that they are a friend, a white ally, if you will, and that's not the case at all. It's just that they uh, are looking to fuss at some other white people that they uh, have some beef with. Um, let's see. The I, I thought it was also really important as well 
Uh, I'm just backing up a little bit. That portion where he talked about how the suffering was music, where he said if you could draw a graph that mapped the intensity of the losses that all enslaved men had to suffer, its curve peaked in the 1830s. That, in my view, is striking. I mean, when you talk about scientific racism, I have never in my life conceptualized having a, like, let's see if we can have a scientific graph, if we can chart so that we can have quantifiable data on the suffering of black people. And if we put this on a graph, this would be where, I mean, that is amazing uh, in my mind. I just, I don't even know what type of brain uh, could come up with that way. Like we are abusing these people in such a methodical manner that we could graph out when the abuse and torture is increasing and how it's increasing. And when it was real, we were really sticking it bad to the niggers and that, I mean, it is profound. I just don't think that we ponder, think about whites in that manner. This to me, uh, would be something I would submit when folks try to say that white people are ignorant about racism. Not at all. This is like detailed, scientific, computerized analysis of our suffering. Uh, I think I could stop there. There are probably a few other things that I, I could pick out, but I, I think I will make sure... think I will pause there and save the rest for uh, next week. Uh, there was one other person that dialed in with a hand up. Uh, we are, over time I told folks not to, to dally and folks wait until the last minute. Sometimes I take these calls, sometimes I don't. Uh, just to get your last thought in, the person that dialed in of 0302. Uh, did you have a comment you wanted to get in briefly before we uh, wrap things up? Caller at 03. Yes ma'am, if you could speak up, your volume is low. Hi, this is Lady. I'm sorry about that. I thought that I had uh, placed myself in the queue, and after a while I, I didn't hear you, so I noticed that I didn't place myself in the queue, so I, I apologize. Um, I wanted to answer the question about the uh, sexual power of black women having sexual power over white men. Um, I've never experienced that, so I'm not really sure uh, why the author tried to insinuate that any um, type of advances made by me to towards me by white males has always ended tragically with harassment. Um, white women, even if I tried to ignore white women, sensing it very quickly and uh, exercising their right to have me eliminated from the job, um so it it never is a power it's always or uh the white male perpetrator eliminating you from job or um somehow discrediting you for not heeding towards his advances um and you are always a less than stellar person even when you when you are involved with these white men, so um, I I really just don't understand what he's referring to. There is no power. The white male has the power, and he exercises it when it comes to dating, marrying, 
and having children with uh, non-white black women. I um, also noticed that the author tried to insinuate that it was almost like a better lifestyle for the light-skinned, non-white black women to be prostituted or um, maybe put up on a pedestal for their complexion. I find that to be offensive because um, I don't think any of these women basked in any glory from being prostituted um, or used as, you know, some type of sexual tool by white men. You know, uh, so I'm pretty sure there was a lot of, and we all know consequences that came with that, diseases just probably ran rampant, just disgusting. So I think that that was uh, a form of racism, white supremacy, to try to make it as if it's, oh, it's, it's a better lifestyle because you're lighter. Um, and I think that uh, this author, um, he just plays with that picking of this white person may have been better, a little bit less racist, this black person may have had it better because of this look or that look. And uh, it just, that pitting, I can I can see that pitting going on in the book. Also picking up on how uh, the, the one-eyed man and that being a reference to genitalia, I've heard it many times before, one-eyed snake, snake or one-eyed monster, especially in children's books and uh, children's cartoons. And it's a sly way of sexualizing children, uh, especially in the quote-unquote fairy tales. Uh, So that's why I don't recommend that any uh, parents with black children allow their kids to indulge in those fairy tales because those undertones of sexuality are always present. And um, the last comment would be, um, I guess I lost my... um, train of thought on the last comment that I wanted to make, but um, so I I'll guess I'll, I'll just leave it there. Right on. Glad we got uh, at least one uh, black female response on that one. Uh, folks uh, want to email and we can share next week. That'll be fine too. Uh, the quote, the passage again uh, that she was, lady was responding to uh, where he said, this is in chapter seven, uh, some women of African American descent use their sexuality to create a little leverage for themselves uh, and I said that that you know <laughs> stood out to me immediately uh, if folks want to comment on that we can share next week uh, we will be back next Friday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific uh, looking forward to uh, continuing we're kind of closing uh, home stretch of the book uh, we should be here tomorrow 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, compensatory call-in. We'll do news observations from the last week, uh, workplace racism. Uh, We'll be looking forward to hearing from folks uh, tomorrow evening uh, as well. We'll give the lineup for next week. If folks have any uh, questions, gripes, complaints, uh, suggestions, uh, feel free to drop an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. Fundraising for 2016, uh, the blog racism racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, 
Uh, the PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not in the PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported the program nearly seven years. I hope the broadcast has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, With that said, creator, we ask that you remind us sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. This book and many others, I think, have revealed uh, whites have used that as a major weapon uh, of terrorism so that we are not thinking in our correct mind and making the best decisions. Uh, Certainly, if you are going to operate a motor vehicle, be a passenger, even a pedestrian, uh, you do not want to be under the influence. Uh, You do not want to be inebriated and have that be the day that you bump into Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, Dan Pantaleo, any of these race soldiers. Uh, You want to be lucid, clear thinking, uh, so we can make the best possible decisions to keep ourselves as safe as possible and any other folks that you might be uh, responsible for. Uh, That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of racism we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs) Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.